Internets, it is Saturday morning. It is Saturday. It is morning. All of this, usually, without coronavirus, would be pretty chill. Or it should be. Maybe it still is for you. But in either case, this is the Mad Christian Saturday morning chill. And we got your questions and all sorts of conversation coming up today. Along with my main focus this morning is to talk about a particularly glorious thing. Something that... I remember from of old, you know, well, when I was 20 at least, and it means it means a lot to me that I found it when I did and how it was expressed at that time. And I want to kind of share that with you this morning, but we got other things coming your way. Uh, more from Rome. Uh, we got a little bit about being surprised that I'm Orthodox or not Orthodox, as the case may be. Things like that, along with your best questions and comments from last week, your highlights and super chats from the sidebar, and of course, a little Mad Christian LARP wizardry always thrown in for good measure. And don't forget the law of super chat, that super chat is not a law. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I will try to pull you to the front if I can, but that doesn't always happen. By the way, my new book, We're Without Flesh. It's not called that. It's called Without Flesh. It's hard not to call it the title you called it in your head for 10 years, but I really am actually thankful for the process that CPH put me through uh, in which they said, well, we think it's not the right title and let's work on it. But they, you know, we went from Word Without Flesh to Without Flesh. And frankly, I think it's a great title. So I'm thankful for that editorial process. And that new book is out. You can find it on Amazon if you like, as well as at other places. Meanwhile, if you really love the show, the shows, the bonus content, I don't know if you joined me for Good Friday last night. I don't even know what that was like on the other side. I had a ridiculous adrenaline rush. You can see the final candle I put out. My hand is shaking. It's just because I'm alone. I mean, I I can see there's a couple of viewers, right? I think we had 35 live viewers, something like that. I can see the viewers that are there. Um, And uh, yet I'm by myself in the room and there's no feedback whatsoever. And so over the course of that hour, like, I mean, it just built the, the text and the, I mean, it just was like getting huge emotionally for me. And so by the end, I mean, I was in like a deep, um, well, experiential uh, you know, place. I don't know if that came across at all, but if you enjoyed that and that kind of thing, and this just always being here and me saying, I'm going to do more, I'm going to do more, I'm going to find a way to stay out there. Well, then Patreon is what makes all this possible, right? And Patreon, you get there, you subscribe to the podcast effectively. It may, Once a week, you're going to get a, a subscription ding on your account, buck twenty-five a week's not so much, right? Gets as up to five bucks a month if you do it that way. Um, and that is what makes the world go round here at the Mad Christian, what, university? Ha, um, if, if I fail to mention Mad Mondays, I should not. I'd be committing a crime to not tell you about the best newsletter on the internet uh, coming out again this week for you. Okay, so I did all of that without ever having looked at Ecamm software as if I were not running the program. So I'm, I'm assuming everything is working out pretty well here. Now, how would it tell me that there... Oh, there, there it says. This just showed up. Ardith, by the way, thank you so much for the super chat. Uh, she says, that's a thank you for last night. Amazing. I watched out, says the sunset here. Yeah, I was really happy with the timing of that thing. Um, I, I could have started, I probably should have started five minutes later. There's a moment where you see I get up and I pull the blinds and the sun's down, but it's still not quite dark enough to like have the whole image be done. Um, uh, be black, right, by the time I put the candle out. Uh, so I uh, I missed it by about five minute mark, but I thought I thought overall the feel of the video works really cool, right? Like you get this just transition to darkness, um, and I'm uh, the other disappointment I had was my strepitus. The strepitus is the loud noise at the end of a Good Friday service. It's one of the most. Uh, 
esoteric uh, experiential things you'll get in Lutheran worship ever. Uh, and it, it it was pretty sad last night. I, I knew I had to do it in the room. I knew I had to not break anything. I thought, oh, my hymnal against the desk, that'll be enough. No. <laughs> no, that was not. Slap. But, um, you know, the, 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 the living art of immediately going to end video, um, I don't know if you picked up on that little ending of Mark, short ending of Mark uh, style strepitous action there. Enjoy it. Thank you so much, Super, uh, super Chat, uh, Ardith. Um, thank you so much. Uh, blah, 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 blah. So trying to look back actually at the comments and at, um, well, just my software because I did all of that from my script what the heck yeah um and i'm also noticing i i turned up the the volume on this thing uh, the gain uh in order to have a better control of it for when chloe was doing those daily kind of updates based on wolfmuller's stuff i thought that was a cool little project to give her um and uh I don't know if I should put it back it's a little overwhelming though so i'm going to turn down my headset this is just too much for me oh, oh where is he going like he had to go under the desk to get to his soundboard and in fact that is what i did <laughs> i love my standing desk it is so cool but in order to fit my soundboard it has to be a little low uh everything in the world fits on my standing desk it's quite nice uh except my chair my chair does not so uh, good morning see i went too low it's too low hold on So good morning again, and we're going to be here for a while, I, I digging through a whole variety of things. Uh, I want to start, though, with your comments from last week, a little bit of feedback to begin with here. Now, I have this all set up. Let's see if I can make this transition happen. And I had to slide a little bit this way. Oh, I think that worked. Yeah. Uh, so, um... Manyard says, I, I loved your podcast. I just got finished listening to your Tragedy of King Saul. That was last Sunday's daily Mad Corona video slash the sermon. I know if you're a podcast listener, you've been missing the sermon content and its regularity. Although we're trying to get some of that over there. It's tough when I was doing the daily to keep track of what was getting over. Not everything that went on the daily was really good for podcast. Uh, and so I, I didn't want to like burden you with that. But the sermon, the, the bonus sermon content, I know if you're a regular listener to it, you got to be missing it. So hopefully, if that doesn't come back soon as a real just reality, uh, I will find a way to uh, to get something more on the podcast that's in that direction. Like unto, well, well, again, this message here about that sermon on the tragedy of King Saul, very convicted, he says, I feel like I was always asking for forgiveness, but never repenting, believing the curse, but not the promises. I I know I'm not part of your parish. I don't expect you to respond, but I will keep listening. Thanks, Manyard. Um, yeah, well, God bless you. That's why it's out there is for you to listen. And uh, I mean, I would, I would encourage you to make sure your pastor thinks it's okay to listen to what I'm saying, because if he thinks I'm a heretic, you probably should listen to me. Or you should find a different pastor, right? So so I'm in, I'm in that way of thinking about it. Uh, at the same time, I don't expect this just to be for my parish or for my benefit or for anything like that. I expect the mutual consolation of the brethren. And it's when Christians just speak to each other about Christianity uh, to be something that's really good, right? And then we could just share and have and, and make use of. Um, and so, you know, I'm doing that as a pastor, but it's not my vocation as a pastor to do this. Nobody's really called me to do this per se. Um, this is just me, first article Christian, toying with the tools of communication, right? Right, uh, and finding that uh, this particular tool, YouTube, aka Radio of the Future, is um, somewhat underutilized by Christianity. I think, yeah. I mean, it, 
I think. And the, and the podcast with it. Uh, although I think we're trying. We're trying. But we're so divided, right? In any case, I, I hope that this then helps bring some unity to you in the fact that the scriptures that you get here are going to be a binding reality with anybody who believes them and shares that truth with you. So uh, thanks for the feedback on that. And yeah, the King Saul, I, I'm glad I brought you to conviction, but I'm even gladder that you know what you're focusing on now is the promise. You believe the promise. That's that's exactly right. That's kind of where we're going to be going this morning. Kind of, kind of exactly where we're going to be going when we get down to that particularly glorious light. But um, oh, I just moved my picture. Look at that. But first, let's jump over here to some highlights from last week's comment feed. We got someone watching the comments closely, reading them, scouring them for hilarity, wisdom, and all of the like, uh, in order to put together this little document here, which I will be making use of. Um, unless by chance, and I didn't read it through this week, unless by chance we had our mix-up happening, but I don't think so. I think this is right. Uh, so these are your best comments from last week, so I can respond to them just in case I miss them. Paul says this, I have six kids, and they all choose to get out of bed the minute Pastor Fisk starts broadcasting. That's incredible. I, My kids don't do that. <laughs> my kids wouldn't believe it if you said that to them either. I don't think, what? I mean, we like our father. We think he's a pretty cool father, but getting up early to hang out with him just doesn't make sense. Unless there's video games involved, then we'll be there. <laughs> yeah, so cool. Um, that's, that's incredible, guys. Thanks, or guys, gals, peoples. Um, glad you're tuning in. Absolutely. Uh, when I was your age, I would let my brain be melted by NBC, I think, mostly, although CBS and ABC from time to time. And, and they would basically try to squeeze out anything that wasn't He-Man and, and then try to squeeze He-Man into a love for planet Earth via the Power Rangers. Uh, not quite, but it was like that, right? And you come out of the other side and you're like, that was fun, right? But as I look back on my Saturday mornings as a child, what I did was I wasted them. So God bless you for gathering together and letting Saturday be a day of wisdom, a day of understanding, a day of reality, right? I mean, I like fantasy too, right? I love my cartoons. Still, I still think a good cartoon is a good cartoon. In fact, the Voltron reboot on Netflix, barring the radically bizarre shoving it down your throat sexual agenda that was thrown into like three episodes over seven seasons and would have been fine except for that they included it as the very last shot of the entire seven seasons. Was it eight? I don't remember. Whoa, what just happened to that? <laughs> was it eight? I don't remember. Uh, barring that, the Voltron reboot was unbelievably good. And I mean family entertainment good. Uh, we watched that thing. We laughed. We I don't know if we cried, but we we shouted. We giggled. You know, every, every single kid. So I highly recommend cartoons from time to time. But Voltron as much as he is a great representation of the heresy of partialism, Patrick, uh, as, as much as Voltron may be this, uh, he does not in any way replace what I was talking about earlier, that mutual consolation and conversation of the brethren. Right? This is the old way. We're, we're not there yet. The old ways. We're coming. We're coming to the old ways. But, but we're not there yet. We're, we're going to get there. Um, but that way of talking, the mutual consolation and conversation of the brethren, is uh, the old way uh, of saying Christians talk to each other about Christianity. <laughs> right? And, and you're getting up to do that here Saturday morning. Yeah. Good for you. God, good on you, God on you. I don't know if you can even say say that. That reminds me of this other thing. Now, do I have that note close enough to see? I've been working on... One of my like, uh, let's go back. Let's, let's 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 do some like TV broadcasting style switching. See what I did there? The camera moved and everything, and we're so professional here at Mad Christianity. Uh, it's, uh, one of my like games of this LARP 
or edges of this LARP wizardry game idea, one of the edges, is I just want to get the Bible in my mouth more. That That's kind of the goal I have. It's not that I really believe in casting spells. I just think we underestimate the power of the Word of God significantly, and that if we imagined that it as spells, it might help us care more about, say, learning and speaking it, right? Because that's what I care about, is speaking the Word of God. That's what I'm concerned about there not being enough of, not just in your life. I don't know what your life looks like. I know what American Christianity looks like. But in my life, I know what my life looks like. And I'm a pastor, and I'm paid to speak the Word of God, and I do not speak the Word of God enough. And it's because I think I have not heard it in the right way. So so here is, here's the, the dig on this. This isn't about whether you believe it right, or this isn't really about, you know, where's your heart language? or anything like that. It's just a matter of training. I mentioned the Saturday morning cartoons a moment ago, and I was, I was you know, tongue-in-cheeky a little bit, but then again, you know, it's not the best use of time possible ever, especially as I did with, you know, eating white Wonder Bread slathered with margarine covered in <laughs> white sugar and cinnamon. It tasted great, but I can't imagine it was helping me on my way to diabetes too, um, not helping me, because I did almost get there. Uh, not there, uh, thank thank God, but uh, that might have had something to do with it, right? Not, not the best use of time ever possible. Putting your hope in your mind into learning how to use the Word of God by actually using it is what's been inspiring my imagination recently. And I'm, I'm talking about this on every single level here. I'm not talking about how can I talk to my neighbor about Jesus. I think that's important. But I think once you've asked that question, it exhibits that you have not answered this question. And I don't think you can really get to that other answer without pushing more on, on, on this question and this answer. So it's not, how do I talk to my neighbor about Jesus? It's, how do I talk about Jesus? <laughs> it's, how, how do I talk to myself about Jesus? Which, by the way, to some extent is the definition of prayer, to some extent. Careful with that one. But, but it has an edge there that's true. So in, in wrestling with that, one of the things I'm doing is I'm reading through the Psalms, still trying to do one a day, not, not succeeding all the time this year, but trying pretty hard, getting a good dose of Psalms out of it. Uh, uh, one of the things I'm hunting for are the phrases that you never would write down, and then I'm writing them down, because I want to catch them. And I haven't really been good at this yet. I, I'm trying. I talked to my wife about it yesterday, like before breakfast. <laughs> like I, she, she, she's so patient with me. Like every time Jonathan comes out of his little study studio room, I know he's, he's walking with his empty cup of coffee and she's got to hear me come and think, oh my goodness, he's going to say this new idea he just had and it's going to like change the world and I'm going to have to say good for you and not in any way get in his way so he can go back and keep working on what he needs to work on. Ah, oh, yeah, right. She's so kind to listen to me. So, I, but I shared the idea with her, um, and she she was patient, and we talked about it, and we tried talking to the kids about it. But I haven't really been able to do it yet, right? And and here's this idea: is that you would you would have some of these phrases that are lesser known because they're not the ones that we say put in a in a hymn, but they are ones that we could use all the time, like all the time. So if you listen to Wolf Mueller, he's talked about how we need to say God be praised a little more often, right? Just thank God for what's going on. God be praised, right? And I, it's, it's the same idea, only I'm like, whoa, 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 let's get real with this thing here. Because if you're going to say God be praised, by the way, just so you know, you could say it in Hebrew. You already know the word. It's not very difficult at all. 
God be praised. In Hebrew, it goes like this, Alleluia, right? God be praised. Now, during Lent, you might not say that all the time, right? You might need to say some other thing, like return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, right? As the liturgy does. But so it's, it's in that idea, though. So how can, I, how can I be casting, literally, these words of the Bible into the world because they're good words and they're true and they tie me to a history that I don't want to lose touch with? So, so and here's, here's again, I haven't done this yet, but I can't wait. I want to be in a conversation somewhere where somebody's like, this was so awesome. I had this awesome thing happen to me. It's great. And I'm like, I'm like agreeing with them, right? I'm not mocking them. I'm just trying to do a funny voice. And you know, this is so great. And, and I can be like, it is like precious oil upon the beard. Like I can agree with them by saying that. I'll be like, it's just like precious oil on the beard. And like the world will be like, what? But, but if I say it right and I know my audience and my group, like my family, well, then they can maybe know that's a reference to a psalm. And the next line is, on the beard of Aaron, oil dripping onto Aaron's beard. He's been anointed. He's been christened to be high priest again, right? To do the work of the high priest. So, so when you say it's like precious oil on the beard, you're talking about salvation, right? It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. So, so it's like precious oil on the beard running down upon the beard of Aaron over the collar. It says like of his robe, think like the chasuble of your pastor, like the best looking piece of vestment your pastor's got on. And there's like oil just running all over his beard and down over the whole thing. Cause he's about to go into the Holy of Holies, right? right? It's like that when something good happens. I want to say that. That sounds awesome. Or yesterday, now I can't see this one. I don't have it memorized yet, but I want to start saying, instead of goodbye, I want to say, wait for the Lord. I want to say, wait for the Lord. Not goodbye. Now, Godspeed's a good thing to say. It's nothing wrong with that. We don't really know that that's what goodbye means, but, but I want to say, wait for the Lord. And then the response this is like my sermon for tonight and tomorrow, by the way. <laughs> You're getting it early. Uh, the response. Uh, this is out of, uh, I, I think I have it right now. It's Psalm 135, I think. This last verse. The response. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart know courage is the response. So I'm like, goodbye. And you're like, goodbye. But it's like, wait for the Lord. You're like, be strong. And let your heart take courage. I love that. Like, I want that to be my goodbye all the time. And then what's even better is you get this super awesome thing English never does. English doesn't give you options usually. It gives you options of vocabulary, but not options of like parsing and phrasing. In other languages, you have these. I, I use this in, in Without Flesh to talk about the Lord's Supper and the is the word is even there in the text argument. Uh, about the lack of the uh, of the copula uh, in the Hebrew and all this. And you can go dig on that. You can get the book, right? Okay, but so... Uh, in in that conversation, uh, the idea that that the words are uh, are limited to the language that they're being spoken in, and cannot be translated or confessed by someone who was inspired and without error uh, to to amplify them, um, that idea needs to be rejected entirely. That what these words say, they actually are. And so when I say to you, wait for the Lord. I'm not saying goodbye. I'm quoting to you a everlasting and deep piece of omnipotent wording. <laughs> you can say it that way. Uh, in a special way that, again, English doesn't always do this, where there's an option now in saying goodbye, goodbye. Like as Americans, we only say goodbye, goodbye, right? There's no option for like a third, oh, senor, most respected, 
goodbye, right? You remember that when you're learning that foreign language and it was like, this is the with respect way of ending the word. You're like, well, why would I do that? I'm a 12-year-old boy. I don't respect anybody, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't know what it may, makes sense of the whole thing. But you have a with respect ending right out of the psalm. So wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart know courage. And then the person who said it originally, as they're leaving, if they want to like emphasize even more, they can say, wait for the Lord another time. And, and if you do, you will have quoted the entire psalm. Yeah, verse, the whole verse. Uh, it's absolutely awesome way to say goodbye. So that, that's my that's my like little dream here, right? My my little play game, um, which uh, all comes out of. You see how distracting you you guys are. That all came out of uh, Paul's con- comment about his kids watching. So I hope you enjoy that, everybody, because that was the. That was the tangent of tangents. But it led us toward where we're going to be going again in a moment as we get to more of the glorious light and old ways. But first, looking after our pastors, Robert says this last week, Fisk, have you looked into doxology? Basically, pastoral care for pastors. I attended the Lay Readers Conference and found it really helpful in terms of learning how to best help your pastor. Yes, I have, I have looked into doxology. I know it well. I highly recommend it. I think anybody who lives and is a pastor in the Missouri Synod should go to doxology. Um, I have not gone. So I am not the example of this. Uh, I'm the example of how not to do it and how to get stupidly lucky and still get through and not crash. Uh, and, and I'm not done yet. <laughs> right. So, um, I, so I may still get there. The issue, of course, is a combination of cost and time. Uh, so it's pretty cool that they're going to teach, they're teaching the lay leaders at a conference. That's a great idea, uh, kind of about the needs of a pastor. But you're like, okay, pastor, we want to help you. Here is a conference that costs money to the congregation, which you have to ask us for, and which is going to take a great deal of your time away from us and everything else. What do you think? And most pastors are going to be like, no, because <laughs> the two things I have not got enough of is well, you too, right? Money and time. So, um, doxology is a great thing, though. Everyone who goes is like a lifeline to them. So, if you're at the point where you are like, I don't know, I don't know, like you need to go. You straight up need to go, right? Um, before you get on any other kind of medication, which you can do, by the way, but before you do, uh, doxology would be a good conversation, reaching out to them and asking uh, for help because they actually have thought about that stuff quite a bit with regards to what pastors need and how to help pastors when they struggle with things like darkness, right? Things like depression. Uh, things like, I mean, it's not, you take medicine for all sorts of stuff, uh, but but uh, th- things like, um, imagine uh, a, a pastor who was not, say, depressed, but say had some sort of seizure, right? Uh, something in the brain. And Yet, if you had the right medication or diet, nutrition perhaps, which is true, uh, the, perhaps the Caesar would be dealt with and uh, and go away. Well, you'd want him to do that, right? So, so a pastor who has a regular chemical imbalance in his head with regard to uh, depression in some way, whether nature or nurture, I don't know, and nobody does, both, duh, uh, to have him be able to be medicated, uh, well, that, that's, a, that's a really good thing, right? Um, so... Uh, in this, caring for your pastor, looking out for their needs, uh, remembering that they're human just like you, uh, this, is, this is what doxology does really well, because that was kind of its goal and founding, is like the pastors are on the vine in the Missouri Synod. They really are sort of, they're the last one that gets to say anything's wrong, and, and they know all that's wrong, and it's very isolating, very lonely. 
Um, you think pastors are always saying what's wrong. They're keeping their mouth shut a lot, by the way. Uh, we're doing our best to be gentle warriors. Um, so yeah, uh, I've heard of it. I recommend it. Um, I recommend it without having been. Uh, did we miss a super chat from Cringe Walker? I don't think so. I think I got Cringe Walker's super chat last week. Uh, but... Uh, I didn't miss this. Luther only seems to have argued sola gratia and sola fide, so I kiss. I don't feel too bad not worrying about sola scriptura as in later terminology. Well, it's not as if this is what we take our stand on, for pity's sake. Is it is it that Luther came up with a term is the reason that it, we believe it to be true? I mean, I, Luther was great. If you are a Bible reader and you've not engaged Dr. Luther, then you must consider yourself an amateur. It's just straight up, right? It's just straight up. That goes for some of the best theologians of other bodies as well. But but certainly, uh, Luther was a master of the scriptures, but that hardly made him infallible. I'm not infallible. I'm, I'm sure if you dig through, oh my goodness, I hope it never happens. If, if you were to, computer AI, uh, yeah, text, you know, video to text all the videos I've ever done on this channel <clears throat> and turn them all into books and then have scholars <laughs> go tear it apart and create categories of dogma out of that. You might get a lot of really great ideas, but it doesn't mean it'll all be right and that we should go to die over it, right? So, and now I'm, I'm don't get me wrong here. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to reject this idea here, but I, I want to emphasize the point. Some Latin phrases don't save us. Remembering to say grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone has never, in my experience, guaranteed grace, faith, or scripture be present in an actual congregation. Okay? So the idea is that we would believe the grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, not say it a bunch of times. You see the difference here, right? And, and so, you know, if Luther never came up with a brand... Or what? This is more of a tagline than a brand, right? Lutheran, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. Oh, that'll that'll sell, guys. We should go with that one. Well, Dr. Luther, what about evangelical? No, my name on the building. <laughs> that was the opposite of what happened. Um, <laughs> aye, aye, aye. But 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 you see what I'm saying? And the idea is you don't have grace alone from God without scripture alone telling you it's true because you will insert the law and you don't have faith alone in the true God without scripture alone as his voice telling you something to believe. So neither of those things really exist without scripture alone as the sole rule norm and source of what we are to believe because it's what God has actually said to us in real time in an unmistakable way, unlike the voice in your head, right? Which is pretty mistakable to everybody else. Yeah. But, but unlike that, the scriptures are unmistakably here for us. So, so we can say God has said it, that saying of God existing, which does in fact create grace, give grace, make grace is grace that then creates definitely faith, right? That reality, um, that's just Christianity. And yeah, sola fide, sola scripture, uh, sola gratia, they, they explain that. If Luther didn't ever say that, so what? He believed it. And if you don't believe it, I don't care if you say it. But if you look at the scriptures and it's talking about grace as the gift of faith in Jesus for your salvation and you don't believe it, well, what I got to say to you doesn't matter very much compared to what's going to be said at the end, you know? 
Uh, Jedi says again, uh, my problem with Sola Scripture is that you have to look outside Scripture to define what Scripture is from tradition. Oh, I see where you're going. Yeah, I disagree. Um, but it kind of de- depends on what you mean by Scripture. So if you want to get narrow with modern categories, you're right. If you just believe the Word of God in Pentecost, not as much. Uh, I, um, I don't have a problem with this, but my evangelical friends get triggered by this. They do, because they have a ridiculously biblicist view of the Bible. That is, it's a magic book that fell out of the sky. And by magic book, I don't mean you learn what the words actually mean and cast them like spells into the darkness. They mean it's a talisman of holy powers that will magic talk to you from God about special things just for you. That's a really weird thing to do with a bunch of letters written by Saul of Tarsus after he, you know, got blinded by God and then threw away his life, nearly got killed, nearly got killed, nearly got killed and got killed. So, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to take with those letters and, and to do with them. But if you see them instead as the, the speaking of an apostle, right, an actual wizard whose word of God was so powerful it could, like, heal people and stuff. I mean, I don't know what you call the guy. He's an apostle. He's a wizard. about the same thing. So, um, in my mind, at least, for, for what I know what a wizard is, right? I don't know what else you do, how you define that word and what else it means. I mean, Harry Potter was not a wizard. He was a uh, witchcraft, witch, right? Sorcerer kind of guy. Anyhow, anyhow. Uh, they freak out because they see the Bible as a magic book. And they treat it all like it's the same. And this is why they don't understand most of it. It's because they treat it like it's all the same. And effectively, they treat it like it's an encyclopedia. Which is not. Very rarely does it even act even a little bit like that. It's a category. I'm sorry. It's it's, it's a, a compilation of categories that need to be taken individually for what they are. The words of God given, spoken, and then written down at a very specific time and place to, again, be the rule and norm for... We can know he said it. If, if thus said the Lord, if he said it, then he said it. And it never changes because truth is truth. And it is bigger even than language. That's what Pentecost means. So then why am I, why am I so worried about what scripture is at this moment as opposed to trusting what scripture is, right? Uh, I don't need to define what scripture is. Scripture is defined itself just A-OK. And you can say, well, you got to look to trish, tradition to say that. No, I don't. I look to the fact that it exists. Tradition attests to the fact that it was written. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to the church in Rome. That is not a matter of tradition. That's what happened. He did it. And the words are still here. And tradition finally remembered to say, yes, he did this when he was here or there, perhaps. And tradition said, well, the same Paul is the guy who wrote the one to the Corinthians, right? And it put them together in a little tiny book so you could read them all together. Well, that's the tradition. But the scripture, and even its limitation, is by no means what we have done, nor do you have to look there for it. Now, I don't mean to be, again, super mystical, but if you go pick up even the most heretical Bible today, like the Jehovah's Witness Bible, it's got like bona fide lie errors in it to deceive you. You're still going to get most of the Bible right. 98, 99% of the thing. I mean, you can't, you can't get too far off it. And then once you have that, I mean, I knew a guy who knew a guy, so I can't say I knew the guy. I knew a guy who knew a guy who he had a Jehovah's Witness Bible, which as a pastor, he was reading regularly. And so when they would come and talk, he'd bring out their Bible to argue with them. And every time they got a new one and changed the verses and stuff, because they did that regularly in their history, it's pretty amazing. Uh, he'd go back and he'd get the new one. 
He just he just prove it again from somewhere else in the scriptures, right? Because there's just so much there. There's no question what they are. So don't be triggered by the fact that that we don't have a human answer to why the Bible is the books it is and where, like what, the real second and fourth Corinthians went to. Who cares? You got it in front of you. Use it, right? Trust it. And and, and know that then what it says is uh, grace and faith. Now, it, it, by, by the way, scripture alone, see, here's the thing. Most evangelicals think scripture alone means no tradition or without tradition or generally without thought. Just by feelings, what I want, that's what God said, what I want. Yeah, that's what God said. That's where they end up usually, right? So um, since that's how they see sola scriptura, that's how most Roman Catholics see it. It's how it's often rejected and condemned. But it by no means means that there is no other thing besides scripture. I mean, think about it. How can you have three things that are alone? Grace alone and faith alone would obviously be a, a, a counteractive, a, 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 whoa, I was very distracted by this. Uh, perhaps you will um, you will all understand why when I throw this up here. Thank you, Jeff. $200 from Jeff, and all he says is thank you. Well, thank you. Dear heavens, that's a big gift this morning. Appreciate it. Um, I'll leave that just hanging there for a moment. Uh, will you forgive me if that distracted me enough that I, uh, uh, I didn't see... I've lost what I was saying. Let's see. We're talking about, ah, yes, you can't have, you can't have faith alone and grace alone without contradicting yourself because you can't have two alones. If you're, if you got two alones, you're not alone, you're together. So it should be grace with faith and scripture then, right? So, so when we say scripture alone, we don't mean without any other knowledge. We just mean it is the sole rule and norm by which all other knowledge is judged. So that if you get new knowledge that says, I'm from God, and it's not in line with the scriptures, well, you can trust what came before. It's, it's as simple as believing the power of words. It's not even an argument like that. You, you don't have to believe in, in some sort of supernatural penmanship of the apostles to get to inspiration and even inerrancy. I don't think you do. Uh, you just have to believe Jesus has risen from the dead and that this is the God who said, let there be light. So his words have always been matters that are uh, of something much bigger than what we think of words as being. Uh, and that our words are a reflection of that. That to some extent, our image of God being, the one we're always arguing about that we have no answer to, uh, well, here's my answer, right? Which is not the one you normally find. It's that we talk. It's that we talk. Different than the animals. We, we have words. We have the words of God. We, uh, you know, and now the word has become one of us too, right? So it's even more so, I think, is that the case? Um, so, so I, I just think it's bigger than maybe the argument you're having with your evangelical friends, which, duh. <laughs> Sorry, evangelical friends who are watching, but you guys are kind of in the kiddie pool. Let's put it that way. Oh, a little, little cold coffee here. Question from lazy sounding younger, but wiser listener. Really? Brian Wolfmuller, is that question? Uh, or or that, that one, I get there. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Brian Wolfmuller says, what do you think of Luther's Theology of Martyrdom? Uh, is that a book that was published by Brian Wolfmuller? Look at how much money, he, er, how much uh, gas he got out of that 20 bucks last week. That's incredible. Oh, did I say someone gave me 200 bucks? Uh, Jeff Bettenhausen. Bettenhausen. I don't know if I'm saying that right at all. How, how, how do you say Bettenhausen in not funny German and in American, American style? Bettenhausen. Something like that, probably, right? Um, Baumgarten. That's, that's kind of what we said. My, my, my mother's maiden name, Baumgarten. Baumgarten. It's just like that, right? We, we didn't mutter it. Bettenhausen. Uh, so thank you, thank you, thank you. That's going to pop away here. And we're going to say from I have Athanasius says, uh, Have you seen uh, Astarte's Part 5? 
No, I don't even know what it is. And David says, uh, maybe what Red Fisk wants is a real-life Minecraft clock. Yes, precisely. I'm surprised they don't make that. That's a marketing miracle, I would think. That's pretty cool. A real-life Minecraft clock. That's exactly what I want. All right, so let's see here. I'm going to make sure I don't lose too much track of where we were going. Ah, yes, the old ways. The old ways. This is just a comment from you guys. Oh, but goodness gracious, I should have stayed here. I should. This should have been earlier in the show. Uh, it was up for... That was bad radio. Let's try it again. This particular email from one of you was the runner-up to this coming Monday's uh, Illuminati Need Only. Only? Illuminati Need Apply? Is that how I called it? Whatever it is? Do you get what that is? So in Mad Mondays, there's a feature every week where one of your emails is selected to come before my glorious presence and throne as a potential, potential, uh, what? Clue to us to know that you are one of the special enlightened ones of the the actual yeah, conspiracy theory Illuminati. I don't believe in any of that stuff, but it's actually out there and you're part of it. And I know now because you wrote such a daringly clever and insightful letter. And so I thought I better expose you and share with the world. But since, you know, it doesn't exist anyway, right? Who cares? So <laughs> it's just a section where we're going to put your best email from the week. And, and this was the runner up. It is really, this is a deep dive bit of work here, but the other one just had a little more of that universal feel. So if you watch the show, this one will maybe make sense. The other one is, is more for anybody who might be getting that newsletter. But last week uh, we talked about, and somebody asked about the catechesis for the evangelical. And you can see that here in the comment, right? You can see that right there. Catechesis for the evangelical. And I tried to say, you know, where it might be. Um, and I pointed to Peter Slayton and uh, uh, Crucial Productions as the place to go because he might know where the, the resources were for that. Um, but Brian Yamabe, who does a lot of work for us beside, behind the scenes here as well, uh, he's a big part of why the short videos come out every week for you. So pray he doesn't die or quit because they won't be there without his help. Um, uh, uh, he, he said this and he, he went digging. You know, in the last carnation of the Worldview Everlasting website, and we're going back, what, four years on that now? Five? No, three. Is it just three? It's not even that long, really. But now, of course, it's the one that is is uh, owned by the atheist <laughs> propagator. Um, he, he found under the More tab a link to the catechesis for the evangelical. So it was there on the website, yeah. Um, and it had been there for, for a while. And I'm pretty confident, again, that this was something Peter put together. Um, sadly, that link was not crawled, he says. So there's nothing you can click on. So, like, if you have these... Supercomputing wayback machine. I don't even know. Coders and computer people know how to go find where the internet got stored a while ago. Like the whole thing once, like a snapshot, and um, and, and they get most of it or something. But apparently they missed this page. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he tried really hard to find it, couldn't find it, and says, therefore, your suggestion to contact Peter is probably the best bet. Um, that's as far as the sleuthing skills could take him. But that is pretty deep into the, is that the dark web? Does that count as dark web? I don't know if that counts as dark web. But this is fun, though. I agree. While I was searching, I did find this quirky video from 2013 titled Jonathan Fisk versus Evangelicals. I remember this. This is either one of two guys or the same guy both times. I think it's one of two guys. So back, back in the day, I got discovered by guys that were a little bit younger than me in other church bodies that are further, can I say, to the right? Um, Eastern Orthodoxy, like literally on the planet, a little more to the right, and, and definitely in that conservative social structure sphere, right, compared to, say, America at all. Um, 
and uh, and they make a couple of videos and they want me to like respond to them, but but they were usually pretty um, you click on the link, go you can go watch it, you can go watch it, it's fun. Uh, but but they're so upset, you know, they're so upset that that uh, that I'm not one of them. It's sad. They're like, how can you believe the Bible and not be in the Orthodox Church? And it's like, well, there's a lot of videos here. You could watch them and listen. Or you could decide on the heretic and, and go away. In any case, thank you, Brian, for doing that deep digging. And if you guys can see that link there, perhaps this will get put into the show notes. Can I do it? We'll see if I remember. All right. And uh, Multi Grazie from Aroma. I believe that's really bad, bad, what? Romanian? No. Bulgarian? No. Latin? No. Italian. Yes. Bad Italian. Multi Grazie. Is that a little better there? We could do uh, mucho gracias. Not so different, yes? Uh, thank you for your reply. This is from uh, Lorenzo, our buddy over there that's actually a Lutheran in Rome. I've reached out to both Reverend Bombaro and Reverend Wolfmuller. Checked out Fighting for the Faith. All awesome. We will see how the Lord leaves, leads things. Uh, given that you passingly mentioned putting a church in Rome, I'll ask you this. How can I, a lay believer, bring to people bring people around the good news of Jesus. Well, right now, you guys are probably locked down like we are, right? You can't. Um, is lay evangelism a thing, or should it be led by an ordained minister? And if it is, what are its boundaries apart from the sacraments? Obviously, good question. Uh, I don't want to make the email too long, but I really wanted to thank you. Your old WeTV videos have been the main tool the Lord used to bring me out of the burden of the law into the comfort of the gospel. Yay! For this, they, well, God through them, amen, might have saved my life. Peace and grace in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lorenzo. That's awesome, Lorenzo. Cheers to you. Here's my my coffee, which I think we, we have to thank the Italians for preserving this particular way of making coffee called espresso, right? Was it Italian? I think it was. Turkish? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, your question dealing with evangelism, is evangelism even a thing? Is lay evangelism a thing is your question, but I want to ask the question differently. Is evangelism even a thing? Evangelism is a category that's not in the Bible that was popularized, branded, by marketing, business-oriented churchmen of Protestant sacramentarian heritage. It was their word for sales pitch, their biblical pious word, and it has become that. And it can, in Lutheran circles, then double for another word that we used to use, which is conversion, conversion, um, evangelism, and the evangelism committee, in theory, if it's orthodox, is the conversion committee. And they want to have conversion happen, not just evangelism, conversion. Now, is it true that when you speak the word of God, that there are those who convert and those who do not? Yes. Is it true that when you speak the word of God, you always speak the evangel, the gospel? No, not at all. So th there's a weird thing where we have, we have so overemphasized the gospel in our use of a language Adopted from those who really meant to turn Christianity into a sales pitch. That now we don't even really know, well, what it means. What, 
What does it mean to evangelize, to gospelize? What does it look like when you have that conversation with somebody? Where do you start? Do you have to do the whole law gospel dynamic? Go watch Ray Comfort in Living Waters Ministries. He has some success with it, by the way, on street boxes. So, you know, do you do that? Uh, Or do you just go with the Jesus loves you thing? You know, well, we just had a conversation with the waitress and we said Jesus loves you. So we did our evangelism for the day. Uh, yeah, I tipped her 10%. <laughs> you know, uh, is, is, is it that? I mean, so I want to say the first question you should ask as you're this human being who's Italian, I'm assuming, living in Rome, converted via the internet to believing that the word and sacraments, that's the body and blood of Jesus in bread and wine given for you to eat and drink, is your salvation. And you're stuck in Italy where the, the height and pinnacle of the Reformation's antithesis in the abomination of desolation that is the Pope's actual mass. It's like, you're there in his backyard. Like, I know where you live, where the devil has his throne, right? There's a little revelation action going on there. And, and so, you know, and now you want to ask, you know, how do I begin telling the gospel to people? How do I begin converting people? Right? And then out of that, I'll ask your question. Can a layperson convert another layperson? Or can a not pastor, can a not apostle, can a not paladin, can a not police officer of the church with with the badge and the and the and the stick, can anybody who's not him speak the word of God out loud? And the answer is um uh, can I can I can I say it? Because it's actually orthodox. Like I'm gonna say it really slowly. Um, you are, well, no. I mean, see, can I can I can I do it? I don't want to do it wrong and get and get chided. Um, you'll be damned if you don't. You hear me? You'll be damned if you don't. It's not about how you got to convert people. It's not about how you got to go make enough disciples. It's about discipline. Discipline at the heart of discipline. Discipline at the heart of discipline that is what is the making of disciples in the the didache, the teaching of the words of Jesus Christ. And you best be on it. Yeah, you best be devoting yourself to the word and you already are. So here's the thing that's going to happen. And this is what I'm like, I want to have like an activity book for this now, right? But but it happens anyway. But what if we channeled it and like did it on purpose? So what's going to happen is the word of God that you engage and read and hear is going to gradually grab onto your soul that doesn't exist, your life, your essence, your reality. You have a soul, but it's not different from your body. You, it's going to grab onto you. In your brain, and then the firing lightnings of your brain, the Word of God is going to be running channels with it, and it's going to start to take over. Like an alien species planted in your head. Yay, that's fun. Ooh, there's something there with that one. Body snatchers. Body givers is what it is. So that's going to happen. And as that happens, you're going to start saying out loud things that are what the Word of God says, even if you don't quote the Word of God all the time. Now, we live in an age with a powerful catechism that's working against this, namely uh, the boob tube, as we called it in the 80s, I believe, Uh, the nonsense box. James May, who works with Lutherans in Africa, 
You may know his name, may not. He told a story once I found very compelling. He was bothered when he was visiting a a poor local seminary of one of the church bodies over there in Africa. Every nation has its own Lutheran body, and they all have a kind of political alliance where they work with or without each other, yada, yada. So anyway, he was visiting one of the, the areas where there's men to be trained to be pastors, and every time that the class was out, and you're, you got to think this is like Africa savanna-looking place, right? Like Like mud walls and stuff like that. Every time the class was out, though, the three or seven guys, six guys, whoever they were, he was doing like a seminar. They would go immediately get coffee or whatever, and they would sit down and they'd watch TV. And the TV was always on. And, and James says like on the second or the third day, he walked over to the TV with a, like a Sharpie. Who knows where he got a Sharpie, but he had one. And he just wrote over the TV. You could still see it, but he wrote on the screen in permanent ink. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a oh, who was it? It's not Cyprian who cuts down the truth. The accent, it's not Barnabas either. Oh, Alaric, that's not it either. Oh goodness. Anyway, he he takes the pen and he writes um, Catechism of the World, and so you can still see the picture, but you you had to look through the title Catechism of the World, Teaching of the World. There's something to this idea, uh, what James did there, and it it struck a point. By the way, the way he tells the story, at least these guys stopped watching the TV. <laughs> um, now, I'm not saying you should stop watching TV. I'm saying you should stop listening to the TV. I think there's a big difference between watching the TV and listening to the TV. You stop trusting the TV. Why do you trust it? Why do you trust me? It's kind of on a screen. You trust me. Stupid. We all do it. All it takes is, is to have this like glowing blue light like turn off some part of our brain. <clears throat> it elevates our like fight or flight, but then it also turns off in some way. It's probably because it's elevated fight or flight. Uh, it, it, when you're in a fight or flight elevated stance, you do not ask as many questions. You take answers quickly and you simply make assumptions. Because if you're running from a bear, you can't pause and decide what path to take. you got to run, right? So the blue screen... The blue light, the colors, uh, the, the scrolling, all these things that we have in these devices around us, they effectively put us in fight or flight mode without us even knowing it. And I, I don't feel like I'm in fight or flight. Oh, you're not stressed and filled with anxiety? Really? Oh, interesting. Oh, you're not relaxed and restful? Well, then you're in fight or flight. <laughs> you got too much cortisol, not enough. Uh, now I'm going to lose. What's the other one called? Don't take it. And people take it. Ah, oh, it's crazy. Um, don't take it. Um, it's like a sleeping pill. Meh, 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 meh. Uh, the bigger issue is not that you need more of that hormone. You need less of the other hormone, cortisone, and you're going to get less of that <clears throat> by letting the sun go down sometimes <laughs> just letting it happen for reals. But with that being said, then the blue light has an impact. The colors have an impact on our, our brains and how we absorb information from the screen. And so we trust it. And so the, the, the TV, as you get it, whether it's the nightly news or whether it's MTV or whether it's, <clears throat> whether it's a, a series, a TV show, it is talking to you, not just entertaining you. And as it talks to you, it's giving you words. And those words will become part of how you think, whether you like it or not. Now, you can be, I disagree with what they said, and now that's part of how you think. But that's going to be there. Now, what I'm telling you is that the Word of God is going to do this too, and the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, without the power of the screen, but by all means, making use of the power of the screen at this moment, uh, without the power of the screen is going to be doing this to your head, changing your head, putting itself in your head, so that eventually it's going to start fighting back against that catechism of the world. And you may not end up like you know James May, like writing on your actual TV screen to make your point, but you might not watch the same things you watch to listen to the same things you listen to. Not because, um, not because they're not good even, but because you want to, you want to fill your time with better words. 
as much as you can. I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about something yesterday. Uh, last night I hung out with the family outside. They, they, can I, can I say it? They attempted to build a fire and then I built a fire. Oh yeah. So <laughs> we hung up by a fire pit for a little bit last night. My wife really wanted to sing some hymns uh, after the uh, the streaming service that we did and all that, uh, or that I did. They watched it. Um, and uh, so we got out by the fire and of course, little kids have to go to bed then and it's the in and out and all blah, blah, blah. But eventually it's just a couple of us. It's my oldest and, and my wife out there. And I shared something with them, which is making use of uh, one of these like audio machine, epic, um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, there's so many ums in my statements right now. This is really bad radio again. What do you call these things? Uh, soundtrack trailer music stuff, right? Like, so, and I love this stuff. I absolutely adore it. And so much of it's free, um, which is really kind of cool because that's how they get movies to find them and then buy them, right? To, to make use of them with the rights. But, um, so I use these for like hiking and walking. I use it when shooting baskets and I use it sometimes for say prayer. And, and I found one, I'm going to share this with you guys eventually. I'm going to do it right. But, but I found one that if you say it just right, if you say it just right, you can say the Nicene Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments uh, with the Gloria uh, to the music so perfectly. Uh, it's like God wrote it. I, 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 I kid you not. I say it every morning now. <laughs> if I push play, this is incredible. Oh, I'm going to confess and pray right now. Um, that, that ability, that potency of, that music has, um, uh, again, it, it connects us to the power of the word, right? And so music can meld your mind and, and twist your mind the same way that television can. That's why combining music and the blue light and the color, MTV, hello, um, is like a mind meld morphine machine. I mean, it's just why, if we had this as Lutherans and Lutheran school was just eight hours a day of MTV only done with Lutheran dogma, they'd all be like, we are Lutherans, right? They, 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 they would, <laughs> it would work because it is, it's, it's, it's like a brainwashing machine. So you kind of got to be aware of that, know the tool, Fear the tool, trust the tool. It's like shooting a gun. You don't not shoot it because you're afraid of it. You shoot it, and then you really know what to be afraid of, right? You want you know what not to fear then when you when you use the TV. So so with again <laughs> trying to get back to that original point about converting people with the word of God, acknowledging the power of music, the power of alternate catechisms, the power of alternate words, but then saying, what happens when you take the words of the omnipotent and living God, which he has given you, and you try to memorize them? Stop just assuming that I'm going to like get a little bit of it here and there as I listen to issues, etc., and Fisk, and it'll all just sink in, and I'll be able to say, well, why don't you pick a verse or three? Your favorite ones. And like, Make it a gambit. You got Easter. Easter's tomorrow. You got eight weeks. Pick three verses, memorize them, and see if you can start saying them in casual conversation by Pentecost without anybody knowing you're quoting the Bible. Doesn't mean they don't have to know you're quoting Christianity, just without them knowing you're quoting the Bible. I'd be willing to gambit. If we all started doing that, conversion would take care of itself very quickly. I... I am crazy. I'm sitting next to a closet in a room on a planet that's hiding from something we can't see. 
talking about a man who we killed and isn't dead anymore. So, you know, take what I say with a grain of salt. <laughs> but um, what I would say is this, my friend. Uh, you need a paladin. You need an ordained minister. You need a, a, a sent wizard when you have more than two or three gathering. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't send a wizard, paladin, pastor, preacher, preacher. It's a good word. It doesn't mean you can't send or call one before that. You can. You can have someone purely as a missionary, just, just going in, in cold, right? But if you're already there on the ground, that means God has a plan. Like, like I can't say this part loud enough. I should have said this right away to you, right? If you're there on the ground, God has a plan. He did this to you, not you. So I'm pretty confident he's going to figure it out. And what's going to happen is, whether through the context I gave you or otherwise, other people are going to show up. And then God's going to put a church right underneath your feet. And you apparently are not the ordained minister there yet. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> but uh, whether you ever are or are not, God's got the plan for that. What you should busy yourself with is discipline in the word of God, the scriptures. And by discipline, I mean with your mouth out loud every day. And convert yourself to that if you want people to convert to it with you. Super chat uh, from Paladin SGT. Sweet. Um, I saw uh, tangent. I, I saw an email. I get an email every week that I wish I could really care about, um, which is on like fan-made Dungeons and Dragons expansion booklets PDF. They're always free once a week, and I always download them and save them. Never gonna get to it. Uh, goodness, goodness. Well, the one this week was about the anti paladin. I'm so curious about the history of the anti paladin. Total corner nerddom, right? But the anti paladin seems pretty awesome to me, honestly. Uh, but paladin SGT says you are giving me better words to try and teach my family against the catechism of the world. Much thanks. You're welcome. Um, go army, beat navy. How'd that get on my screen? Once a marine, always a marine. I'm I'm none of these things. I'd be a flyboy, uh, is what I would be. But I respect it for that reason. Oh, uh, that'll be said again. So in in um back to Europe, back to Italy, where amongst all the other things going on, God's going to put a Lutheran church apparently in Rome uh, over the next what five years. Fear not, Lorenzo. You are but the beginning. There, there's a there's a verse. <clears throat> I don't know how much you want to know about this. So as I'm trying to teach myself more Bible verses, right? One of the things I'm doing every day is each Psalm, I'm trying to just pull again, the verse, a verse out that seems obscure or, or out of place, but good that maybe I could either understand better or learn its context or learn how to use it. Right? So that's kind of my tact right now for adding scriptures to my general knowledge base. So once a day, I am adding a psalm verse to a piece of paper, and I'm starting to catalog it with categories and all this kind of stuff, what they're good for, like greetings, right? So wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart know courage. You know, a greeting right there, as opposed to other things. You know, uh, um, it is like precious oil upon the beard. You know, that would be an exclamative, right? Uh, that would be like a, a positive encouragement or uh, a agreement, um, uh, empathizing with someone who's having a positive experience. Right, so, uh, ba 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 ba. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I lost it though. 
Ah, it was so good. I want this one back. I want it back. I promised I wouldn't try to go back today and only, only go forward, but now I lost it. Um, as you're writing these verses down, my point is, is to talk about memorizing the verses and I'm writing these verses down one a day so I can go back to them. Ah, oh, here's where it was. And one of them, which has been, I've wanted to share it, but I never found the right place to share it. So I'm kind of excited to share it with you. One of them is from the, um, the Psalms of Ascent, which are a, a series of Psalms near the end of the Psalter that are about, or from probably the post-exilic times, that is after the exile, and they're songs of sojourn. So they're songs that would have been sung regularly by the the Jews who were not in Jerusalem, who are pilgrims now, or exiles still, haven't returned, but they are returning on pilgrimage for the feasts. And if they're doing it right, they're doing it three times a year, and they're singing these three times a year as they go. Eventually, it became something that was sung every step as you went out the temple. These songs of ascent. Anyway, they're about restoration. They're about exile and return. They're, they're marvelous as like their own little category. They should be their own little book. They are their own little book. Uh, with, with that said, so one of them in there has got this line that just haunts me right now, and I love it. I, I, again, I say it every couple of days at least um, out loud, but it fits, Lorenzo, where you are. It fits mission. It fits evangelism. It fits conversion. However you want to talk about church growth, let the reader understand. The psalmist says this, he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, what does that mean? I mean, dream can mean happy, right? And I think it does. But a dreamer is also not doing much, right? Like the dreamer is just like lying there. You're actually asleep. So it's, it's positive, probably. It's not a nightmare. But it's also restful. It's quiet. It's surreal. So when I go to the grocery store right now and I see people in masks and grandma's running away from me in fear, right? <laughs> it's it's like a dream. It's not a happy one, though. It's, little, it's not a nightmare either, right? It's a little dystopian, weird action dream kind of thing. Um, That may be just the gamifying of everything. I don't know. But... That said, that that's surreal feeling. So, but a picture of that, but then now it's now it's a sunny summer afternoon and it's surreal, right? Those who dream. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. So what's this? This is when the temple got rebuilt by decree of Cyrus the Great. Excuse me. I I, I, I get so excited about Chirash. Xerxes the almost great. <laughs> oh, bad press for that guy. Um uh under the reign of Xerxes, the Ark of the Covenant. No. Scratch that. The temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem. Zion and the sacrifices were were restored and established. The book of Nehemiah and Ezra details this. Chronicles touches on it, I believe, as well. Those who were there describe that by saying that when that happened, we were like those who dream. We, we, we didn't even know how it had happened. We didn't even know how it was going to keep happening. It all seemed, and you read the story, it all seemed like it shouldn't be happening. It was all backwards. How on earth could this possibly happen? There's no plan to make this happen. There's no plan to raise people from the dead. There's no plan to convert people to an unbelievable gospel. There's no plan to live successfully and happily to the very end of your days in a veil of tears. But there is a man who isn't dead and at some 2,000 years old in his body at this point, 
He's moving everything for the good of those who know and love his name, which he's working that too. So I'm pretty confident whatever is going to happen to you in Rome, um, just meander with a little bit of purpose. Wander, not as one who is lost. Let the reader understand. Discipline yourself in the words of Scripture and wait. Someone's going to show up. You're going to start batting it back and forth between each other. And before you know it, you're going to be like, we need to call a pastor. And one of you might just say, well, you know, damn the torpedoes, let's go. Don't forget it, Lorenzo. Think on that one. Think on that one. And yeah, pastors curse like sailors in private. So when I'm trying to recruit one, give me a little leeway. Here we go. Um, that was supposed to be for something else, which we're going to go to right now. I did I miss a super chat? I don't want to miss it if I missed one. I feel like I maybe did. We're gonna roll back up and go to we did. Nope, we didn't. Nope, we're good. Okay, cool. So here's the thing. What are we looking at? Time was 9:30. This book, look at this property of WeTV. That's funny. Um, this book was never actually property of WeTV. The sticker was property of Bethany Lutheran Church in Naperville. Um, the image on the skip, skip sticker is property of, of me, which I just drew for fun. And speaking of, is that legal? You think MTV? That was pretty creative, wasn't it? Anyway, is what it is. That's the past. You see grandpa's church smiling from inside the E grandpa's church is sitting in there. We have spawn <laughs> as an angel. Uh, my old vintage drawing. Something's down over here forget what's in there. I can't see it. Oh, it's more of the vintage. I put it in there twice. Gospel for nothing and forgiveness for free. Oh, that's funny. That's off the, the MTV. I want my MTV. Um, so in any case, more fun than this sticker is um, on the inside of my uh, altar book. So the altar book is like the hymnal from, like if you're going to go to <laughs> like a Warhammer fight against the witches or whatever in Space Magic Land where they use like these giant tome books as like their military weaponry. Like the altar book's that one. <laughs> it's just huge. So I have one of these things because uh, I'm trying to keep it in good shape. It, because of the, the width of the spine, if you don't shut it all the time, it bends and creases and breaks. And then you just got to buy a new one. And sadly, someone else broke mine. But I, I try to keep it in good shape as much as I can. And so I put a sticker in front of it, like on the inside, like, you know, right in here that uh, that would tell you who it belongs to. And I love it because I just found this sticker and I put it in there. So if you open up my altar book, you'll see that it says property of Batman. <laughs> So no one can take my altar book. But that's not what I'm talking about at all. I have my book of Concord. You can see it's my well-loved and well-used one, Cold Wanger here. And I'm trying to dig into this again. I, for the first probably four or five years of my life as a pastor, I was in this book, probably even eight years. I was in this book, yeah, five days a week. Four or five days a week in the morning, first thing in the morning. And I, it wasn't long. It was like a paragraph. It was a paragraph. And I haven't been for quite a while. And it's because of a number of things. Study time and business buildings don't really work great together. Um, so there's that. But needless to say, I'm trying to come back into it again. I've tried multiple times to re-engage. And the pattern of having two hours to read in the morning just isn't there anymore, no matter what I do. In any case. So so I'm, I'm, I'm foiling it through this um, LARP wizardry thing too, right? Which if you're, okay, I'll try to keep this tangent really short. If you're a geek and you like your Magic the Gathering and you like books, 
Okay. Um, I got a, I got a fun game for you here. Uh, but you have to like books and you have to be like me where you love books and you read like multiple books at one time. And so you need multiple bookmarks and you really don't like the bookmarks you buy in stores because they're a expensive and be floral or something. Right. Um, and, and so you end up using things like sticky notes, folded pages, you, all manner of things in the world you use as a bookmark because you just don't know. Right. There was a time there for a while where I was using, uh, what was it? There were these jeans I would get at Kohl's, but their tag like was this awesome bookmark. It was just fantastic. Well, in any case, so I found the best bookmark in the world. I just, I'll, just, I'll just show it to you because anybody who is, oh, where are you now? Did I move it? Oh, there we go. <laughs> I had to pull it out. Right. Anybody who knows this game knows what this is. You know what this is. Um, if you don't know what this game is, you don't know what this is. And that's okay. But we'll just say that if you play this game, this is... Oh! Dropped on the ground. It's the most powerful card in the game. Uh, most universally played card in the game. It's an island. Well, the island is a blue color. There are five different types of land, like islands, islands, mountains, forests, swamps, uh, plains in the game, and they all have different colors, blue, red, white, green, black. It's all based on that. It's largely math and poker for the most part. But that being said, each of these different colors has a different kind of feel to it. And so, you know, blue is like cerebral, right? And, and in white is like healing, usually. Uh, and green is growth and black is decay and red is fiery burning and stuff, right? So so here's, aside with realizing that, you know, all my old lands that are completely worthless magic cards make fantastic with beautiful masculine art bookmarks. But if I really wanted to get gamified with the entire thing, I could start marking my Bible passages and my Book of Concord passages and others with bookmarks according to the school of verse that it is. And so blue has become the color of dogmatics. Hence, here it sits, marking my place at F-C-S-D-V-1, which that's a pretty cool like name for a spell, I think. You know? Where did you learn that spell? S-D. No, no, F-C-S-D-V-1. It's Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 5, that's your V, Paragraph 1. That's what I want to talk to you about here right after this super chat from Jedi Knight Anakin Cringewalker, who says, Q, how does the eternal unchanging son's character fit into his flesh? Having a start date. Oh, that's connected to another question that's coming up later. Uh, this gets my brain hurting because my brain wants to say God changed, but we know he does not. Here's the thing. Do we really want to break it? Because what needs to happen is you have to break it. That part of your brain you're working with right there, like, it already is broken. You just will not acknowledge that it's broken. So you need to break your unwillingness to acknowledge that it's broken. And you need to break it really, really hard. And it, it basically goes like this. It doesn't make sense. And that's none of my business. <laughs> no, um, it doesn't make sense. I'm not just talking about what your question's about. No, no, slow down. Slow down. Sit down. Take, take a step back. You got a window near you? Look outside. You see it? Hold on. I'm going to do it with you. All right. I'm, I'm looking at some green grass and a house and some wind. I'm going to tell you this. It doesn't make sense. If you think you're going to make sense of it, at the end of the day, you're going to die sad and depressed. 
It doesn't make sense. But it's not completely crazy either. And in fact, you have the key, which is a narrative, a history that you know ahead of time, in part, that does make sense. Except for that it doesn't make sense. <laughs> in the same way that everything else doesn't. Because if you want making sense to me, I can fully wrap my brain around it entirely. You're, you're done. Just go land on the YouTube page and try. You can't. There's too much. If you've never studied quantum physics, I really recommend the lowest end entry point you can find. Go search for a cartoon on it or something. But go look at some quantum physics. And acknowledge that. If it means anything, it means we have no clue what's actually going on <laughs> with the world, with the universe, with time, space, and existence. We have absolutely no idea what is going on. And so trying to figure out the start date for the unchanging God's change that didn't change is sort of like, I don't know, manic you know, I mean, I'm, it's not that I'm not manic here. I get there myself sometimes. But, but, <laughs> like, the OCD just has to let go of this one. Just kill it. Just, just crucify it. Nail it to a tree, man. Um, because, and, and remember this, too. Remember that you are a Greek. I mean, make no mistake about it. You're not a Jew. You're a Greek. As much as you might want signs, like the Jews do, and our mysticism often does, at the end of the day, Western Civ is still very Greek. And in this, your view of the unchanging God is hardly founded strictly on the Bible, just because. It has a massive, massive influx of idea and feel from Aristotle and Plato and, and Socrates. And that's not all bad, because some of those categories are useful, for conversing with other Greeks about what Christianity believes God is or who, who we believe God is. So the categories can be useful for conversation, but they're not, again, the end-all, be-all dogmatic, dogmatic statements of God. I am, therefore I am, is different than I don't change. Especially if we're going to like use the phrase, I don't change, to mean anything ever. Because let there be light was God changing some pretty significant things, right? Change is a verb now. I change that. So, I mean, I, 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 we, can go, we can go deep on the why it's really not that big a deal to begin with. Or you can just say this one too. Can you believe in a God who's big enough to change and remain unchanged? Now, this is a spin on that old philosophy question that they'd like try to throw you off with in college. If you're going off to college, here's one of the ones like, ooh, ooh, we're so funny, we're so smart. Can God make a box big enough that he can't move it or small enough he can't fit in it or whatever? However they spin it. Can God do this thing that's so big that now God can't do anything about it? And if you say yes, you're like, well, then he's not God. If you say no, then he's not God. So, oh, aren't you so smart? Or God can make a box that's too big for him to lift, and as soon as he has achieved it, it's now something he can lift because he is big enough to lift it. God can make an unliftable box that he can lift. One that he can't lift, that he can lift. How? Because he's not you. <laughs> With the whole question. Hey, 
your way of trying to imagine what it's like to be God is done from within the timeline of being a created animal. Like you just don't got the perspective. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm sorry, but I'm like I'm like guffawing this morning, but it's it's just sort of like wait for the Lord, man. Be strong. Let your heart know courage. Wait for the Lord. It's, it's not it's not as hard as you think. So I was about to share with you before that commercial break. I was about to share with you. Um, it's just a line. So the formula of Concord is in this book, the book of Concord. This is the historical writings of the Lutheran church at the time of the reformation for a generation that were considered worthy to be used to judge all things, not the Bible from that point forward by anyone who wants to call themselves Lutheran. Um, I hated this book when I first found it, and I was like, why do we need that? But, you know, it's really good. I mean, when you find a good spell book, you should probably keep it. That's what I'm just saying, you know. And they're all spells. Every book's a book of spells. Everything that you say out loud, these words, they do things, right? They do things. They change things. They, they, they transmogrify and impact and, and morph and do and affect and become action, all this kind of stuff. So, so if you find a spell book that's pretty reliable for, like, wisdom, you should probably hang on to that thing. And, and with that being said, then, the formula of Concord is one document in this. It's done twice because they realized, wow, you know, we really overdid it and made this thing kind of long. Let's make a short version. And so that everyone knows that's the short version, we'll call it the epitome because then they'll know right away. That means the short version. And I'm, I guess that probably worked at one point, but it doesn't now. But you have the short version. It's called the epitome, like the pinnacle, like the peak, like you get the point really fast, epitome. Uh, and then you have this other one, the SD. So we're in the formula of Concord SD, FCSD, solid declaration. <laughs> so if the epitome is like the short version, the solid declaration... That's like a that's a good band name. That's a good uh, album name too. Solid Declaration, good song name. Solid Declaration. Um, I just almost shared something. I'm not going to share. I'm only going to share it with people who are Patreon um, supporters. Yeah, I just did that. Um, <laughs> Solid Declaration would be a good band name. It's the longer version. Same articles, mirrors. I should have been using the epitome since I was trying to break it in easy for myself. I planned to be, but I somehow I was in the solid decoration, didn't realize it. They're very similar to each other. But then I, I had the thought, though. You go, if I'm going to go into this, this deep and ancient book of words and pick the one to start my journey into wizardry once again, uh, why would I pick the epitome? Well, I mean, the original language is going to be better than a translation, which I don't have, which I should probably try to find. But... Um, wouldn't the solid decoration have more weight than the epitome? Well, perhaps. If I'm just going to read it, why not? But then I didn't go very far. I only read one sentence, and I began rewriting it and trying to think of different ways to say it so I could say it all the time as a spell in the world. And it's this. And I remember so vividly the first time I read this. The distinction between law and gospel is a particularly glorious light. We've managed to cloud it, I think, quite a bit. The distinction between law and gospel is a particularly glorious light. You need, you need all these words to have meaning in your ears. Distinction, what's that mean? Difference, space between. 
not like another. So there is something about this law and this gospel, whatever that might be, that they are not like each other. And that, knowing that, knowing that this this set of things over there that apparently we think are like each other, knowing that they're not like each other is, it's not just a glorious light, which I would say that's pretty powerful. I mean, that's what knocked Saul off the horse, made him blind. That's what Jesus did on Mount of Transfiguration. We figure on the last day, there's going to be some particularly glorious light, right? Well, with the, knowing that you don't know the difference between law and gospel and then knowing the difference is a particularly glorious light. And, oh, don't put your book on the space bar, it makes noises. Uh, so in pondering that, uh, wrestling with it, I, I've been thinking about, it, I'm not going to say that in conversation. So like, like, Hey, how about them Packers? I'm like, well, the distinction between law and gospel is a particularly glorious light. High five. <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. Right. That won't work. I think, I think pastors are weird to begin with. Right. And, um, uh, I want to find a way to, to speak that you would then say, which means it can't be in the super weird sense. But, but this truth that learning to see between law and gospel is particularly filled with the glory of God uh, to the extent that in, in the rest of the context here, to the extent that no other thing that's known is, is quite like this one. Even the bits about the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, it doesn't achieve for us what this does. It's a, it's, a, it's a more glorious truth, I would say, but it doesn't, it's not one we needed as much. Um, it's not the heart of the attack against God, which is what the distinction between law and gospel is. Um, but so I've been thinking about how to say that differently, and I unfortunately I have it written over there. Um, but I, I remember that the word distinction just has to go. It just has to go. You cannot talk about the proper distinction with some, you know, second generation Hispanic uh, barber. I, <laughs> it might. But what if you just said in the space between law and gospel? in the space between law and gospel is a particularly glorious light. So that's, that's where I'm going. And then, but we got to get that law and gospel thing. And, and now Lutherans, God help us and forgive us. We have destroyed ourselves with these words. We have, we have parroted law, gospel, law, gospel, <laughs> um, so much in order not, not to call you out and know what you're doing. And thank you. Um, uh, but I mean, this is like the level of Lutheran preaching the way I see it done in the world too much when we talk law gospel like when or maybe let me say it this way when you're an episcopalian from nebraska no, from from uh from vermont right and you run into a medieval uh, medieval midwestern lutheran a missouri city lutheran and you have a conversation about jesus this is about what they see <laughs> they're like oh okay they're different <laughs> right and i think it has something to do with the words themselves as english words as as words that have ceased to be vernacular for what they mean as vernacular in the Greek, right? So when when the words you're using now might be the most appropriate translation in all of English for that word, but it's a word nobody uses. And there's another word that is the vernacular word that does the job. You should probably move to that, right? So the proper distinction in the space 
between now law and gospel. So law, I think law has an easier understanding for the American than gospel does, but I still think it needs to to shift. And so for my own mind here, as I'm working on saying this, where I'm leaning on is another way that Confessions, that's this book of Concord, another way that it speaks earlier in the book, uh, Philip Melanchthon in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and I believe in the Augsburg Confession as well, um, was fond of talking about the commands. He did, he did not use the word law. It just wasn't the only word he ever used. And he would talk about the commands, or maybe the commandments, but the commands of God, the things God says to do. And then along with the commands of God, he, he would not talk about the gospel always so much as the promises. The promises of what God's going to do or has done and is impactful, has a continued enduring effect. In the space between the commands and promises of God. Now, the rest of the sentence is that is a particularly glorious light. And while I love the copula and will advocate for its existence and usage, especially in the words of institution, at this moment, I think you might go ahead and take some poetic license and make the thing sound good by personifying. I mean, I'm not sure German would ever do this, but personifying the proper distinction between law and gospel. You know what I mean by personifying? Make it poetic. It's not is, it is shining. If it's a glorious light, it doesn't is, it shines. The in the space between law and gospel shines a particularly glorious light. How's that sound? And that sounds all right. And you're not going to say that high five, right? It's, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be when somebody, and this is where I want to say it, right? I want this in my mind for this moment. When somebody is wrestling in their conscience, when they're struggling with their sin, when they feel guilty, when they're confessing their vulnerability or their shame, whenever they're weak in front of me, I want to be able, if they're ready for it, to cast the spell. So they say to me, I just don't know what to do. I give my heart and I try and I cannot be the Christian I would be. I want to say, in the space between the commands and the promises, shines a particularly glorious light. Oh, it's like Caviar as an appetizer, you know, I mean, I don't even like caviar, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's, it's, it's like, it's like, um, mm, that's some word of God right there. Ah, uh, some word of God. We got to use it this way. You know what I'm saying? We got to use it this way. Um, so let's see here. I could give you more, but I think that was a pretty decent, like taste of a little, um, blue mage magic casting. Eat your heart out, Jace. Yeah. So with that being what that is, I got another one here from you that I, I want to, um, don't, don't take my title into this uh, too hard. I, I find it all in, in good humor and in, in good flavor and taste and fun. Uh, so I can't remember hearing orthodoxy before. Um, not exactly what you meant to say, but I found this experience more than once in my life and um, as a pastor, and it is sad to me. Um, you're right. Oh, cruddy. There's the email. That's because I did this one this morning. I'm sorry, Lynn. Nobody sent Lynn emails. That was wrong of me. Don't do that, Jonathan. Um, Lynn's a nice lady. Lynette, in fact. My mother's name is Lynette. She says, I like how you refer to God's faithful people in the Old Testament as Christians. I can't recall hearing this before. And then she moves on and she has another question. I'm going to come to that. But I, it's this first part that like, I really want to get at here. 
I like how you refer to God's faithful people in the Old Testament as Christians. I cannot recall hearing this before. Isn't that sad? That's how bad it's gotten. You remember the story where there's a king. He's young. And he's on a throne. He's just inherited the throne. And his father taught him a lot of what he was supposed to do with people and stuff. And he was pretty prepared to be king. What he wasn't prepared for was a couple of weeks after his coronation when one of the, you know, uh, magi, the priest guys, you know, came bustling in, like all freaked out. I mean, this guy was just, I mean, fight or flight. You ain't kidding me. He was wigged. And, and he's hes flapping his hands in the air and all this stuff. Was, what is it? What is it? We found a book, he says. You found a book. All right, you found a book, right? Why are you interrupting me? Do I need to kill you now? Um, we found a book in the basement of the sanctuary behind the most reverent places. We've never seen it before. It's dusty and filled with cobwebs, but you need to hear this. You need, you need, you, King, you need to hear this. And he goes and he has the whole book read to them, and it's the five books of Moses, the Torah, and he goes, oh, 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 I can't say it, right? Bapu, oh my goodness. And he repents. And he repents, and he, he starts to put it into practice, and in his day, the feasts were not celebrated. I, I should say it this way. Before his day, the feasts were not celebrated with such accuracy and reverence, even at the times of Solomon, it says. We're in that time. We're in that time where the book is buried in a dusty closet in the bottom of the temple. And I know you got guys with 50,000, 80,000, 200,000 people watching them every single Sunday and they got a Bible in their hand and it's wide open like this. Can I do it on the camera? Oh, and I'm going to say this much just for you. It's a closed book. You don't know that the Old Testament people are Christians. It's a closed book. I'm not saying there aren't Christians out there in these churches being taught this who are still Christians. There are. The marvelous beauty of the gospel and Jesus is that he does save people through the midst of this stuff. His word is that powerful. His resurrection, death, resurrection, knowing that is that powerful. I'm just saying... If the teachers can't teach you that the Old Testament people were Christians, then what are they going to teach you from the Old Testament that is of any value to you and is not utterly poisoned from the beginning? And the answer is not a thing. Because there's no more clear thing to know than that the Old Testament people of God were waiting for Jesus and the New Testament people of God are waiting for Jesus too. Having seen his first coming. You know what I'm saying? So I I also had not heard this. And this is not the first time I've had somebody say to me, Pastor, I've been a Lutheran my whole life. I've never heard that once. I've had that said to me multiple times. You know what's so stunning to me? It's like, well, you know it's in the small catechism, right? 
<laughs> it was like right there. You memorized it. Oh, I don't remember that. Well, whose fault is that? No, all, all of the above, I think, is the answer there. So you have another question. Has Jesus Christ always, from eternity, had his two natures, God and man? No. And, or did he only acquire, take on, um, assume? I think the word we would want to use is assume. The assumption. Uh, right? I think that's right. The taking up of the man into Godhead is the old way of talking about it. And and I'm comfortable with those words. Uh, did he only assume his human nature? See, now assume, the problem is now in English, I think it's correct, but, but in English it leaves the implication he could unassume it. And the thing is, what he did when he incarnated is not undoable. It's like... You ever wonder why, like the ancient kings in the Bible, like they make a pronouncement and then they disagree with it and they can't go back on it because it's their pronouncement now? They have to maintain their word. They got to keep their word. They're the king, right? Uh, well, it's kind of, can God make a box too big for him? Well, he is. He has chosen that his word shall always be true. This is his de declaration to us, right? So, so the incarnation is never going away. He assumes, though, takes on this human nature when he's conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. When? Well, when he existed as a human being for the first time, which was when that egg suddenly wasn't an egg anymore. And goodness gracious knows how that, I mean, heavenly holies, right? I mean, forget your curse words. Can we curse in a positive sense? Excelsis and Gloria in Deo? That's not right, but backwards, right? Gloria and Excelsis Deo? When, when Mary was sitting in a field or wherever, closet or bed randomly and a still small voice that may have been even too still or small for her to hear because she'd already been told by an angel uh, entered her womb i mean follow me here entered her womb without her even knowing i would contend virgin remember without her even knowing entered her womb and perfectly timed there is this little egg, this little cell floating down this tube, away from its home where it was made, off to a place, quite hostile, really. It's not alive, <clears throat> but it's filled with information and um, high-quality proteins, fats. And then, as it's tracking, somewhere between that tube... It could have been before the tube. I mean, you can get it pretty early. It wouldn't have been in the ov uh, the ovary, but you know, early in the tube, you can get the the fertilization to take place. So somehow there is just a whole nother set of chromosomes that shows up. Did it show up as like God sperm and then enter the egg, or did it just show up all? I don't know. I don't care. It's pretty marvelous to think about, though. But that would be the moment that he was a man now right and this is the debate for pro-life abortion advocates all that kind of stuff right <clears throat> what is it this zygote right? makes it sound so so weird right he instantaneously was there the almighty omnipotent god who then i mean how do you think with that human brain ah he rested he made it. He knew it was going to be good, but he tuned out for a while, it would seem. Somehow. Now, how do you perfectly forget to be God and become a baby? <laughs> you know? I don't know. 
So he definitely uh, took on his human nature at that point and was not everlastingly man. He made man. This is the marvel. He, he made creation. Now he's joined creation. The question of the great theologians would be, uh, would he have joined creation even if he hadn't had to do so to save us? That's the big ifs. You don't like the if questions. You really don't want them because they're all a bunch of nonsense. But if he hadn't saved us, would he have been a man anyway? Was his becoming man only a part of his love, or did he just love man so much he would have loved us into being one eventually? Anyway, yes, is probably the answer to both of those questions. But the, the long and short is, eternally, God has changed without changing. And uh, we got an awesome religion. I mean, what? Why did you expect God's decisions to make sense to you on every level? Doesn't it make enough sense if they make sense on your level for what matters? And the things that are about his level are kind of like on his level, above your pay grade, like literally. Um, on a creation cosmic channel. But I want my brain to be the biggest. Okay. So uh, John, the sacramentarian, uh, continues to have a conversation with me. And... Um, I'm going to touch on, he, he had a lot more uh, of a letter here. Oop, I wanted to delete that one. Had a lot more of a letter here, uh, but we're just pulling out the question to kind of get to at the end. Uh, talking about Jesus being the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So you say no carving, however beautiful and masculine it may be, can capture anything that even approaches the fullness of God that was, of course not. Why would it ever do that? It's the silliest thing you could ever say. It's just a reflection. It's like saying his shadow. Is his shadow wrong? Is he allowed to have a shadow even though it doesn't perfectly represent him? Can I, can I look at his shadow and be grateful that it was Jesus dying on the cross that day? I mean, it, it, the argument is so anti-creation to begin with. He has redeemed images. He is one. He is an image. And, and so to say that if I put, if I, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. There, there is, I, I don't want to do this. Like this is, this is like a really bad crucifix, right? Like I don't really want a church or a, say a giant chapel costs millions of dollars that has this on the front of it. Cause people will be like, that's weird, but it's the image of God. It's a image. It's an icon. It is a reflection of what would be a 3d image. If you were to do it in detail of any man, and that would be a reflection of the one man, Jesus Christ, who, even though he does not look particularly like every single man ever, he kind of does look particularly like every single man ever as compared to say cats. So I think your argument is just nonsense. Uh, my friend, uh, we have seen his glory, not in painting. Of course not. You've seen it in the bread and wine. Oh, wait. <sighs> Could that be what we're actually arguing about all along? Uh, we've seen his glory not in the painting, but in the words of scripture. Ah, uh, like he is crucified. Like, can I see the picture of him being crucified? Is that somehow undoing the words? Are the words only the chicken scratches on the page? Do you have to go back to the original Greek? Because you better with the way you're going here. Because your English ones are just symbols. It's all they are. They're icons. It's all they are, right? Uh, so you're saying those are able to save your soul. Why are those pictures able to save your soul? But the one of the guy down on the cross isn't. I think you have idolatrized. I've never thought this through. Hold on. This is what, what Without Flesh is about. I think sacramentarianism is an idolatry of words. You worship words. What an interesting thing. You worship thought for sure. Rationalism. I've always said it's rationalism. But it's ultimately about believing more in the power of words as sounds than words as words, I think. How can a crucifix even begin to compare to the bread and wine? It can't. Why would it? It points you to it. It's a stupid question. I, uh, you're my friend, right? We're, we're, we've been going back and forth, so you can take this from me now. It's a stupid question. 
Who would ask that? Only someone who's just obstinately trying to make up make up reasons to not agree is going to ask that kind of nonsense. That's like, you know, let it never be. Ume Genita, right? Um, Shall we go on sinning? The grace will increase. I mean, is that an argument? That's not an argument. That's not an argument. Even Moses fell into a sin. Of course he did. Wanted to see God. Yeah, he did. He wanted to see God in his glory, apart from where he'd been given to see God, say, in a snake on a pole. And in a meal, he was supposed to eat. He'd been given to see God. Plenty, Right? Uh, he wanted more. So don't don't accuse me of that. He was put into the cleft of the rock, which is Christ. Amen to this. A picture which a crucifix would show you as the side of Christ is split, wherein you could imagine Moses being put, even as he goes into the rock. For his sin of wanting hidden knowledge, that's what you want. I'm sorry, sacramentarians, that's what you're after. You want to think like God does. And was instead given words of salvation. Well, that, that's what we got. And that's why I'm not ashamed of a crucifix and I can acknowledge the crucifix takes away my shame because it points me to the rock that's higher than I without having to say a word. And there's no question with the devotion, training, knowledge, prayers I'm making where my hope lies. So um, how can we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men? I love it. You make me want to scream. I'm, I'm holding it in. Because the image of the immortal God is the image of a man now. That's how. I'm not worshiping the wood. I'm worshiping my risen Lord Jesus Christ. And whether it be in picture or statue or story, the word, when it's the word, doesn't change. Um, And I've exchanged not a whit of it. But I would contend that if you're not feasting upon the bread and wine as Jesus, you sure as heck, see, it really should be the other word, have. So, grace, peace, and rocking on to you as well. Much more to be said, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you still sound sacramentarian at the end of the day because you're fighting it for no good reason. Well, I don't know why. Why do you want to fight? Why do you Christians not want to believe the good news? I don't get it. So, uh, more, mm, yeah. Hi, Rufus. Uh, I have a question about Article 14 in the Osborne Confession. Really? That's a big one. Uh, It's a short one, but it's a big question, as we can see. Look at this. I I am on a quest to assemble a complete biblical understanding of the Lord's Supper. You have a good luck. Uh, The last piece I need, really, which doesn't seem to fit, is my book? No. (laughs) The question of who can administer it. This quest has led me to doing a slog through jungles of the internet, and after visiting every relevant section of the Book of Concord and several other LCMS sources, I have found only two verses used to defend the idea that only ministers can give the Lord's Supper. Ah, Interesting. Um, so what you're really wrestling with is what is a minister, which is why you're getting to Oxford 14. And I would contend that that's an entirely different question. And you have to answer that as a whole ball of wax before you can then tie it to the supper. But I'm going to agree with you ahead of time without even having looked at this, that I kind of know where you're going on one of these. And you're probably sort of mostly right, but then again, not. So, okay. The first is 2 Corinthians 5.20. I don't understand how this relates to communion, except in the most general of ways, and even then is not prescriptive of communion. So we're going to go double check the verse. I'm pretty sure I know which one it is, but excuse me, going to make a certainty that, let's get this here. Sorry, buddy. Oh, no, I didn't do it. Come on now. There we go. Just like that. Um, first Corinthians 520, hit return. Make sure this thing stays on manual. Uh-oh. Is there such a book as Corinthians? Maybe there's a first Corinthians. Ooh. 
Am I typing it wrong? What? Am I look first Corinthians five? What on earth? No verses found. Five. Oh, because I'm typing twenty. It should be. It probably isn't twenty. So which verse? I think. Okay. So here's what I think you're looking at. You're looking at uh, stewards of the mysteries, right? Let's try to find that one in First Corinthians four, one and two. Is that what you were looking at? I mean, um, and uh, 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 John the Secondarian, thank you for saying thank you as we dig back in. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at your your text here again. The first is oh. There we go. Okay. So I don't know where you're going because I thought you were going to 1 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 5.20. That's part of my problem. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal for us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like I said, a verse that is ultimately about what it means to be in the, the train of the apostles with official capacity. Another one of these, if there was anything I wish God had made encyclopedic in the Bible, I wish he had put a whole book on the change between apostles and preachers, the, cha- the distinction between the official office of the New Testament birth age and the New Testament sojourning until the end age. But he didn't do that. He never wrote us a chapter on um, its powers. We have two chapters on who should and should not be one. First Timothy 3, Titus 2. Yeah, but they don't really tell us what it is. So your next assignment is to go and do what you just did for the Lord's Supper with the idea of the preacher. Because until you do that, you're not going to be able to interact with the way they're using this verse to connect to the Lord's Supper. Because if you have an apostle, if you have an ambassador who's officially there to make an appeal and implore you every week on Christ's behalf to receive God's reconciliation, if that's the job and the definition of the pastor, in what capacity does that not impact the Lord's Supper on an absolutely root level? So now let's come back to this because I'm not going to completely disagree with you either. I think our our arguments here are weak, Um, but I think it's because our arguments for the office of the ministry are weak, and I think it's because we don't understand why and where. And I think that has a lot more to do with the fourth commandment and how much we hate authority. And so we have ignored the answers that would give us satisfaction uh, dogmatically, as in they would tie up the bow, but they wouldn't give us satisfaction socially. They would cause unrest in our congregations as we had to call out people who were not believing the commands on certain matters. Um, and, and so uh, in this way, um, the path to understanding the role of the pastor and saying that only the pastor gives communion requires you must understand as much about what is a preacher, a pastor, uh, as you understand about communion as well, right? So that that's what you're going to have to do before you get onto that verse. Uh, in 1 Corinthians one four, there four one, there's the one I thought you were going to go for. <clears throat> it says the mysteries. Or I'm going to read the verse again real quick. Uh, do 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 like this. Uh, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making, oops, <laughs> silly me. Um, that was the other one. Here it is. Uh, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There it is. 
right? This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Now, this verse is not only used for the supper by many LCMS pastors, it's used for everything that has to do with being a public servant of word and sacrament. The reason for this is not because the mystery of God here is the word mystery that eventually, Greek, mysterion, becomes Latin sacramentum, that eventually becomes the word sacrament. See, that's the thing I'm always arguing against doing. You can't read the word sacrament back into the Bible because the Bible doesn't care about our definition of the word sacrament as a word. It cares about the thing, right? But sacraments are tradition as a word to describe the thing, which is God's word doing stuff with physical realities as saving gospel present reign, right? So so there, there's that. But that's not necessarily what these mysteries are referring to. In fact, if you really want to know what that is, you got to go further backward and forward in the book of 1 Corinthians, which though I will point out, having just written a book on it, in which there's a whole chapter doing just this, the real mystery at work here is the body of Jesus, the man risen, that is also you, plural, the people gathered around bread and wine, it's, that is, him. So, so that's still in the context pretty strongly, I would, I would advocate, but I'm still not going to say that that, that this verse is the proof text that therefore pastors only handle the Lord's Supper. I think that's a bit radical. I think what pastors are is, again, they are, they are still, stewards. They are those who care for what belongs to not them. And this is kind of the important thing then about the Lord's Supper, right? Is it yours? Who does the Lord's Supper belong to? And again, I'm going to have to take you back. Who does the office of the keys belong to? And if you say church, shame on you. Who owns it? It's not the church. It's Jesus. Jesus owns all official capacity in his kingdom. As the king, he owns the office of the keys to unleash and to bind, to save and to damn. He he owns that. Uh, Who has he bestowed those keys upon in the present age as articles of faith? Well, he has given them in their usage as a whole to the assembling of his people around them. So there's that. That when Christians come together, we all own the keys by believing the unlocking as it's proclaimed. But then if we all tried to do it at the same time, I think we'd have a lot of noise going on. And so he also established this role of predictor, preacher, steward, apostle, servant, deacon, bishop, elder. What do you want to call it? Father? It's all over the New Testament. And the only thing that's clear is that they are authorized to care about the public good of the word. That's what they do. That's all they do. And they are authorized to do it in God's name and, and with his holy powers. So they are to steward, they are to care for something that does not belong to them, but belongs not to us all, really, but is for the good of us all, but belongs to the master who continues, God willing, to send it. And you should regard your pastor as a servant of that. That's what his heart would have him be, good or not, as he may be. But then don't miss this too. Us. It's probably the most important line in the whole verse. Us. Us. You're going to see this all the way through 1 Corinthians. He talks about us. He'll also talk about me. He'll talk about you in the plural. Very rarely 
He will talk about you in the English as opposed to, uh, as in the singular, I should say, um, but usually plural, as opposed to, again, notice the we, the we, our streak, we, you are strong, you're in honor, we're in disrepute, we hunger, we are poorly dressed, we labor, we are the scum of the world. Who is this? Where is it? He says it right here. No, it's not there. Um, I'm going to look for it. it. He will say in another place that the apostles have become like the stench of the world, an, a, a, a spectacle. Oh, it's right there. 4-9. I went right past it then. 4-9. There it is. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, for shall be last, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men. So this whole chapter is about how you're not an apostle. And we should take that pretty seriously here. Now, a pastor is not an apostle, but a pastor does stand in the apostolic authority commissioned by the church, the congregation, according to what we see happening in Scripture and is really commanded in Scripture to appoint men in every town to preach. Um, recognizing that authority is there and that that distinguishes pastors from lay people is the first step. Because you, whether you want to admit it or not, live in an age where we don't want to believe that at all costs. We want to hide that at all costs. We want to, there, there is no thing the pastor is that I am not. And that's because we're coming in a knee-jerk 500-year reaction from a time in which you believe there is no thing you are which the priest is. He is holy, you are not. And so we're, we're flipping as a society or as a planet the whole way in the other direction, trying to reject all that authority rather than trying to, you know, lift it up as the highest level of God on earth. With all of that having happened or happening or being around us, the distinction between the apostles and the early church in that they died faster and harder. And even though there are early church martyrs, there were not as many comparatively, like percentage wise. You think coronavirus's numbers are bad? Try being an apostle and <clears throat> getting out <laughs> with a long life. Uh, not going to happen. So pastors have not had that same reality, nor are they the exact same office, but there's a connection between the two. And so in this way, this phrase about <clears throat> understanding that the us of those who are authorized in some different way, whether it be a prophet, apostle, or whatnot, whoever the word of God has been brought through in an in a institutional way, instituted way by Jesus, they are servants of Christ and then thereby stewards of these mysteries, meaning <clears throat> whatever it might be, many in various ways God spoke to his people of old in the past by the prophets. Uh, but uh, now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So the pastor, the preacher must care for whatever mysteries and words are given. And in that way, both sacraments belong there. And so we do say, generally speaking, that um, lay people aren't supposed to baptize either, generally. To show that uh, the office really exists, as this entire chapter just greatly demonstrates, as do many more, but never again as encyclopedically as you would like. You're like, but that's not the same as the pastor. The apostle's different. Yeah, you're right. It's a really tough one to put together. Uh, Hermes Sasa's Lonely Way Volume 1, I want to say, is probably the best 
help uh, you're going to get directly on that. Let me take you back here to your question. Let's see if we can actually uh, bring an answer to this thing that goes back to 2 Corinthians 5.20 and gets us some real Bible here too. So so where mysteries is taken to mean sacraments, therefore communion, but the context doesn't suggest it means communion specifically, no. And mystery is used throughout the New Testament to mean the gospel in general or Jesus in specific, yes, but in that book, it's there more often and it has to do with the body of Christ right? Um, that the Gentiles also are heirs with us. This mystery has been hidden for ages. That might be Ephesians there, but <clears throat> do a look on that one, right? Uh, it's uh, the Gentiles being one, one mankind saved in Jesus. That's the mystery now revealed. And we're to steward that word, but how is that not the Lord's Supper? See, again, you're at, you ask the question with a sacramentarian mind, how do you think Jesus and not think Lord's Supper? How can the body of Jesus not be the Lord's Supper? If I am to steward the words of Jesus, how can this not be the instituted words of the Lord's Supper? How is that something that's different? Right? That, that's the real question here. It's that there's more that the pastor is supposed to be doing, not less, right? We already don't do enough, I think, in some ways. We do too much of all the wrong things. Um, that being said, you know, sacraments was only used to describe community long after New Testament. Yeah, right. So it's, it's, a, it's a bad argument as a proof text. It's a terrible proof text. And we do a lot of that in Missouri still, where we use these proof texts, because once upon a time in the Reformation, somebody wrote well on this text and why it implies that we should have pastors be cared about as a, as a, um, a theological and knowing God reality that God sent. We should have pastors, um, uh, know that, believe that, and then work on the basis of that to preserve all the things pastors are supposed to preserve, like the supper that is a mystery and is the gospel and is the binding of all mankind to the one man's body, Jesus Christ. All that stuff is actually what the supper is, right? So somebody wrote about that, and then over 300 years, eventually people just started to quote it as if as if the verse itself was specifically about the Lord's Supper and specifically about the answer to your question. It's not, because it's not a question anybody had until more recently. You know, is there an office of the ministry? Nobody would have doubted you had priests of some kind. You had those who would mediate in some way. Just most of them mediate according to the commands, that is, they have the priest go to God for you, whereas Christianity has God sending them to you, to speak to you, um, what you could find out on your own <clears throat> as well, interestingly enough. So neither of these verses seem like particularly a strong theological ground to make such a hard and fast rule on. So how is it the LCMS so absolutely certain that only a pastor can give communion, that they absolutely forbid anyone else to give it? Where is the biblical certainty? That's, that's a good question. Um, although I don't think we believe that only a pastor can give communion, I'm pretty confident in just about every single LCMS church, minus like three you have all sorts of other people that help with distribution. And uh, that can be anybody, depending on the context. Generally, if you have men present, you would have men involved in that help. But if you don't have any men present, well, then you could have women help. Um, an extra pair of hands goes a long way. So I, I don't know, you know, giving it is quite fair. Um, but what we do forbid is that you would do it without a pastor there at all because then you're a sect. You're actually not a church. You're just doing something on your own. Why would you not have your pastor present while you're having the Lord's Supper with a group of people? Are you starting your own church? I mean, what else is it, right? You're about to die, and you happen to have bread and wine? <laughs> no? I mean, on an airplane? You know, uh, stewardess, <laughs> bring me some wine and uh, crackers, right? I mean, how is that going to comfort you? So where's the certainty? You're right. So where's your verse showing me lay people doing the Lord's Supper? So you, we can have your certainty, right? If we're going to go to argument from silence. So what the LCMS is claiming, and sadly, when they make the argument that these verses specifically do it, they're wrong. But what the LCMS is claiming is this. 
that the role of shepherd is to care for the sheep, and he has tools to do it, and those tools are the Word of God, period, which includes these mysterious things. We call them sacraments, and they're for the good of all. And if everybody's wielding them all the time, um, then we will wield them for ourselves. And so instead, he appoints a shepherd to wield them for us. And while there are such a thing as false shepherds, and you should be on guard against them pretty much all the time, um, the ones that are not false are in fact standing in for Jesus. And in that way, are there to do these things for you in such a way that it benefits your life. And only in that context can you then understand when we would say that, therefore, there is no such thing as an emergency communion. And so there's not really a good reason for a lay institution of the supper. I don't know if I'd call it a hard and fast rule. What we say is there's no good reason. So it's not that we have, I mean, these two Bible verses, I've, I've said it myself, they don't really do it alone. What they're pointing you to is the office of the ministry and its existence as the reason. Um, and I believe that. Yeah. Uh, but that means you got to study that. <laughs> and if you thought studying the supper was difficult, the supper's only got like seven places to look in the Bible. It's not that many. The office, oh my goodness. I mean, every introduction to every letter, all those lists of, you know, I am this and that and this that Paul lists off. I mean, you got you to dig on all that stuff and then tie it in. Sasa is great though. He's like, look, you can go do all that and you're going to find out it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the New Testament has such a random hodgepodge that they had to have been treating things differently in different locations, depending on what they found with regard to what they were calling what they left behind. But we know this, everywhere that anybody was left behind, there was a man, <clears throat> at least one man who would preach. And he was generally called something. And, uh, as the one who oversaw the getting of the togetherness, there's no question he was involved in handling the bread and wine. No, no question at all. Arsnot Angel Fire. I said it again. That's not your name. You're not Arsnot. You're Arsant, which is much cooler. While at an e-free church, I served as an auxiliary pastor with the youth. Yeehaw. I have no formal education. Was I wrong for taking communions to shut-ins? Your pastor was wrong for having you do it. Um, I wouldn't say you were wrong. Your pastor was wrong. Um, you were not an auxiliary pastor, by the way. You were a adult hanging out with kids, confessing the faith. Uh, you were a volunteer. You were a member of the village. But there's no such thing as an auxiliary pastor. I mean, you can have a retired pastor, but if you ain't been ordained, you ain't a pastor. I don't care. You're a lay minister, whatever. You ain't a pastor. If you're not ordained, if, if the church has not sent at least three to five guys who are also ordained to stand around you and tell you that now you have the office of the keys, so you better not look back and you better get busy working for what you know to be the real thing, which is the grace that is sufficient, and not the false thing, which is the works, which perish. You better get busy on that, my son, and never look back. Well, if you haven't had that happen to you, then you were never a pastor. You served as a volunteer, which is awesome. Totally cool. A father. It's more important than a pastor, really. Father of those youth, a, an older brother, a masculine figure, a Christian man. Shepherd? Yeah, not biblically. Not biblically. But God bless you. Um, uh, but is that So that's how you got tied into taking communion to shepherds. You know what? I mean, honestly, the only thing that didn't happen was they didn't ordain you. And I don't know why we don't. I really, in Missouri Synod, I'm going to be real frank with you. I'm not going to write a paper on this, but I don't know why we don't. We could, we could cut through all of this. And we just make it so that you can ordain whoever you want in your parish. They're just stuck there. <laughs> so think twice. Because <laughs> they can't move anywhere else, right? But you got elders that want to go take communion to shut-ins? 
They have to go to you know, four years of formal education for that? Don't we have a path for that? So that'd be my thought on that one a little bit. But and so we put you in this position by, by trying to defend the office of the ministry, by trying to defend a career for the office of the ministry and the confusion of those two things in a collapsing civilization or as uh, Crezia Cortez said this morning, the, what would she call it? A, the last dregs of a failing capitalism. Um, uh, uh, yeah, well. For what all that's worth, you weren't wrong. We put you in a bad position. You did what a good conscience Christian would do, which is trusted your scriptures and your pastor. And what you didn't have was the full acknowledgement from the pastor, either that he doesn't understand the office of the ministry or that he doesn't believe in the office of the ministry. Because if he didn't do either of those things, and in fact he did, he wouldn't have made it an option unless he was Roman Catholic and believes instead in superpower juju words of institution, which is a whole different topic. There's all sorts of stuff on that out there right now you can find, because that's been the conversation uh, in the LCMS the last couple of weeks. Um, blah, 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 blah. Looks like you guys are all still chatting over there in the comments. I'm going to run back. I know I got at least one more note here uh, in my Evernote list, don't I? Don't I? Oh, I just want to get back to, you know, your, your question though, is there another place in the Bible that addresses who can handle the Lord's Supper? Please let me know. Um, all you can find is that the very few places that it's mentioned, maybe in Acts, it's an apostle who does it. And, and then when Paul gives instructions for worship in 1 Corinthians, uh, there is some acknowledging that there's like a voice being given within the congregation to how worship goes every week uh, and that people are, are able to confess and work together on that. But you have to run that along with the same theology you find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I left you behind to appoint overseers. I mean, there, there's no kings, you know. We, we took ground and we put generals in charge of the bastion, right? Um there's no way around that way of viewing it. So how do you put a general in charge of the bastion and not give him any authority over the bastion? Right? So at the very least, um, at the very least, the recognition that the office of the ministry must be tied to the administration of the sacraments in some way. Otherwise, you end up with a different church. That's where you need to start. And then from there, you may or may able may or may not be able to get to a point where you satisfy your curiosity uh, with an actual Bible verse. Um, let me see if I can give you one, though. It's going to take me a sec. i got to pause for a sec to, to think this one through because there's like a lot of angles on this. Um, Hmm. I'm having an inkling that there's a parable you need, but I don't know which one it is. So I'm still kind of looking for it in my head. Um, Yeah, why not? The net? The parable of the net? I think. Yeah, just that one. I could be completely wrong, but I think, I think there's something there. That net, um, what is that thing? What's it doing? So that'd be my, my encouragement to you there. Yeah. Little, little, uh, uh I don't know. Not archaic is the wrong word. Cryptic. 
I'm not sure I even gave you the right answer. Arr, we have passed our two-hour mark. It is Saturday morning. It is chilling. It's almost not Saturday. What is it, 10.30? It's Saturday. It's morning. It's pretty chill. Or it should be. And this is the Mad Christian Saturday Morning Chill. Today, we had questions on all sorts of stuff, but my favorite, I think, was the old ways, that in the space between the commands and the promises, there shines a particularly glorious light. I think that has to be... Uh, the piece I want to get in my head, although I'll share this with you. I, you know, uh, I, I got my confirmation verse memorized now in Greek. It's uh, mm-hmm. I love it. Um, and um, so I'm working on the second one. And if you know my story about, I did I already tell us, uh, my confirmation verse was given to me. I didn't get to pick it, and that's fine. But I always kind of struggle with it being like a, a law-feeling verse. Um, now I can hear it a little bit better. But I started asking myself, you know, well, if I could pick my confirmation verse, what would it have been? And so I started kind of thinking about all the ones that people pick. And um, I was so proud of, of my my second oldest uh, because I told the, the confirmation kids, uh, you can pick any verse in the whole Bible. You just have to convince me that it's a good verse for you for you. It's going to remind you of Jesus and the supper in some way. And, uh, I've only had two kids take me up on that one last year. And then my daughter this year, and uh, she picked this amazing verse. It's like two verses from revelation. It's like, you know, the rider on the white horse, right? There's another rider on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and fire in his eyes. You know, that's, that's your confirmation verse. That's pretty good. Um, so I started thinking about, you know, well, if I kind of broke the mold and could think about just the most awesomest Bible verse ever, that I could just know and say in a foreign language. No, no, I'd be speaking in tongues. Like literally, I just did it a moment ago. What's she saying? Um, what would it be? And so, but she already grabbed it. She like grabbed the white on the right horse. I'm like, oh, well, maybe Revelation. And I flipped the Bible. And I don't, I mean, I don't believe in this kind of Bible flipping like magic stuff, but I happen to fall on a verse that's very familiar to me. And I love, because I got a deep history of making use of it, of it. In fact, if you have been listening to my stuff since before Worldview Everlasting, for one of those rare ducks, and you have any of my sermons from before I started World View Everlasting, you will find that the musical intro is from an album on which the outro is also from, and the outro is a song called Babylon is Fallen. Babylon is Fallen! Yeah! It's uh, slightly stupid, two O's. Uh, San Diego punk turned reggae turned hip hop all over the place surf rock pothead band really was into them back in the day and they got some I mean they they progressed you know how, how bands like sometimes the band is just like the same thing over and over again you're like well that's what we pay them for but sometimes it's like every album they're like a whole nother thing and slightly stupid I mean they started as this like like I'm not kidding like the back of the first album I had is like this teenage redhead kid in a studio doing a bong hit on this giant bong, right? Um, and like the front image is like this guy surfing and he's got like pot growing out of his head, right? They went from from kind of jamming ska punk rock on a pretty good level, but, but you know, raw. Um, uh, t- with like, goodness gracious, like eight minute guitar solo for wave riding kind of stuff. Um but as they grew as a band, I mean, they have really matured and they moved in genres and their their uh, their skill set, their acoustic stuff's quite unbelievable. Um, so anyhow, slightly stupid, uh, two O's. 
for what it's worth, the, 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 the lyrics are going to be largely terrible, but there's this song because they're Rastafarian kind of, or sort of, um, Rastafarianism is a religion that merged, merged sort of an African voodoo, loosely speaking with Christianity, the Bible, and some ideas of Christianity. And and so you hear a lot of biblical language like Zion, words that we should be using all the time, Zion, Babylon. You hear this in, in their, their music and their song. And again, it's usually wrong, but the song is pretty much Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. And I used to love that because I knew the Christian context. I knew the, the contact point. And as I was coming out of my own dark days and into Christianity, the, this song is one I continue to listen to and still is. I still have it. So when I happened to open the Bible to Revelation, wishing for my daughter's confirmation verse and thinking, there's no way I can find another one nearly as good. And I stumbled upon Babylon has fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She had become a haunt for demons. Um, I thought, well, that might be fun to learn. So we'll see if I can do it. See how much is all memory here right now. Epicent, epicent, Babylon. Ah, I did it wrong. Epicent, epicent, Babylon. Ah. The, the, the enunciations on the O is so, it's so cool. It sounds African when you do it. Babylon. There it is. Babylon. Ah, there it is. Okay, so it's Epicent, Epicent, Babylon. Hey, Megali. There it is. Oh, sounds so cool. Uh, uh, fallen, fallen Babylon, the Mega, right? Megali, the great one. Um, and how is it? It's uh, it's not catechesitai. That's that's later. Oh, what's the word? It's it's ka. But she has become a haunt for demons. It's the language or the word there is, is, has oikos in it, like house, economy, um, cow. Kau oithe, mm, there's a word. So it's, it's, she has become, it's ha aganata, mm, it's gotta be a she. Aganata, that's the she is. And then this word for haunt has house in it. And then the demons is, uh, uh, yeah, to demonion. <laughs> uh, sounds so cool. Uh, and then I'm shoving onto it at the end of verse eight, which is about how she's gonna be purged with fire because the strong one, God the Lord, has judged her. I'm working on memorizing that one. Epicent, epicent, Babylon, hey, Megali. <laughs> so cool, is it not? What a, what an amazing religion. Um, I'm going to be taking off here in a second, but I'll, I'll close with this one here. You can see the sign behind me if you want, right? It's Easter. It's Easter weekend. It's the vigil. Tonight, we would have been, they're already confirmed for us, we would have been confirming kids. I uh, got a new Christ candle. First time they're going to have a wax Christ candle in a long time. We are so excited about it. And, of course, uh, the hymns. And there's a surreal feeling that comes uh, in the conclusion of a Holy Week weekend. If you go to Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's something just omnipotent about the experience. And you know, none of us are getting that this year, no matter what we do. But my prayer for you is that wherever you are, whatever you're getting, that the Lord would use this to strengthen and sustain you. That you would reflect and question, doubt where you should, be convicted where you should, be converted where you should. Note for a minute believe that your religion is not necessary. Religion is necessary. And true religion 
is most necessary of all. We'll keep being good Christians. We'll keep listening to what the government says to do. But Christianity is necessary. And that means gathering together, two or three at least, with a pastor around some bread and wine. It's necessary. It's not going to stop forever because it can't because that's the church because that's Christianity and Jesus ain't dead. He ain't going to stop. So, it's Easter. Let not your hearts be troubled. Be not afraid. Trust in God. Because Jesus. Don't wallow in the muck, my friends. Hallelujah. Rock on.